Welcome, welcome, welcome to the End Times Continue recording on this, the 18th of December, but it doesn't really matter because this episode is going to be kind of timeless. Um, yeah. Sort of like, released on Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Yes, Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm so happy you've decided to listen to this, probably on the Monday after, but that's okay. <laughs> it's expected. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, uh, this is going to be an episode that's kind of timeless, sort of like our 9-11 episode. I'm sorry, I am Dino and you are. And I am Ace, and we have um, a very, very special guest with us, and it, we're talking about a topic uh, that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Um, uh, we're talking about two topics, but they kind of one will dovetail very nicely into the other. But um, uh, we're talking about the Christmas truce of World War One, which I actually find a lot of people don't know about, and I didn't know about it for a long time either. Um, and it's one of my favorite historical events. It's one of my favorite like true Christmas stories that Absolutely. I've uh, ever encountered. So, Absolutely, uh, we're in, we're uh, joined by Patrick McFarlane. Uh, Patrick, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for people? Like, give some plugs at the start, just so people know who you are. Yeah, hey guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, really glad to be joining you for this topic. Uh, my name is Patrick McFarlane. I'm a practicing attorney. Uh, I have my own solo practice in Wisconsin, where I do criminal and family law, and I'm also the Justin Raimondo Fellow at the Libertarian Institute, where I write uh, columns. And mostly about foreign policy, but also about politics and libertarianism. My show is called Vital Descent, and you can find it at vitaldescent.com. It's a weekly show where I focus mostly on um, the the great power competition, uh, Cold War 2.0, that's currently going on that mm-hmm. not a lot of people realize is going on. Yep. Uh, so that's what I do. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah, no, we're we're so glad to have you. We, we've uh, we've wanted to do this topic for a while, and we knew you were the perfect person to like bring on about this because you also did a documentary that we'll touch on in a little bit after we uh, touch on the Christmas truce that dovetails very nicely into like what the Christmas truce was about and like how it happened. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a it's a it's the the Christmas truce is is a fascinating kind of topic. And and your documentary that, that we're going to talk about Johnny, well, why Johnny can't kill or why can't Johnny kill? I always get it. I always can't remember which order those words go in. Which order do they go in? <laughs> I basically it, it's um why can't Johnny kill? And I think why I, can't? I stole, okay, I stole it from Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman who wrote the book yes. about it, and he's an unsavory character. But we'll get into that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. All right. So. Uh, the Christmas truce. Yeah. Everybody, everybody yeah, here knows about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody on the show right now knows about it, but it's it's not really talked about in detail anywhere. And the things that do get talked about tend to be a little bit mythical. Like it's you sort know the of first time I I learned about the Christmas truce. It was a Sansbury Christmas ad commercial. They, really they dramatize. Yes. So Sansbury, which is a grocery, sh- it's a supermarket in the UK. They did a commercial dramatizing the the uh christmas troops and i i I, it had been like eight ten years ago i think something like that it came out and that was the first time i ever learned about it Um, why did you have occasion to see a sainsbury ad 
I, I don't remember. It was just on TV. It was just on TV. I've never been to the UK. It was just on TV somewhere. I don't know. It, it, the ad actually got pretty popular because it's actually really good. Uh, it's a really good dramatization. It, it's some things are, I think, like historically inaccurate, but, you know, it, 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 the spirit of it is the same. It, sure. It's really good. Um, well, I first heard about it uh, from that movie, Joyeux Noël, which I think, I don't know if it was mm. either a French movie or a German movie that it starred um, this Daniel Bruhl, who's the a German actor who was also in All Quiet on the Western Front, that film that just oh. came out on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I saw that movie a long time ago, and I think that's the first time I really heard about it. Okay. What about you, Dean? When was the first time? Do you remember the first time you heard about it? or like? I believe I learned about it on it? Tumblr. Um, oh, that's, all right. Yeah, that's not a joke. I, uh, I think, yeah. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I was scrolling through Tumblr and somebody had posted. Um, uh, it was like a "Did you know?" style post of like in in on Christmas in 1914. Uh, mm-hmm. Both sides of it was it was myth it was mythologized. It was like both sides on the war got out of their trenches and right. and had a football game and celebrated Christmas, which is. Kind of, sort of true. Um, (laughs) It's not, it's, it's, it's not how it's often mythologized to have been. The whole front didn't shut down. And, um, I've got some clips about that, but, um, oh, by the way, I, I I want to acknowledge sources, uh, to, uh, but so I don't have to do it throughout the show. I've got some clips from a timeline video. Uh, they upload documentaries to YouTube and I believe it's just the History Channel documentary that they uploaded. Um, and then I've got uh, a clip from the uh, the uh, the Christmas truce, what really happened in the turns of 1914 from the Imperial War Museums, on also on YouTube. Yeah. Those are where, that's where I pulled my clips, and then I did some reading, some extraneous reading. But those are the sources of the clips, and now I don't have to say that again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. The, the, this is one of the things that so when we imagine World War Two, like to me anyway, World War Two. I'm sorry, World War One is World is one, yeah. yeah, my bad. Is just horrific trench warfare, chemical attacks, yeah. uh, trench foot. The first introduction of tanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, living in a hole in the ground and periodically getting shot and shelled. Uh, mm-hmm. For weeks on end. That's that is how I imagine World War One, and I think that's mostly accurate from November of nineteen fourteen. Mm-hmm. The war, like uh, uh, the the British, the the war, all the parties involved at the beginning of the war entered uh, by July of nineteen fourteen. But there was actually it was a way more mobile war. Um, at the very, very beginning, everyone's trying to outflank each other. And there was this thing called the race to mm-hmm. the sea after the, after the battle of the Marne, there was the race to the sea. Everyone's trying to outflank each other to the North and they're basically racing to the English channel. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much ended in late October, early November. And that's when the entrenchment began. So entrenchment, the trench warfare part of world war one really started in November of 1914 and and that's the that's where that's where the nugget of what we imagine world war one to be kind of began and i think it's important to note that because december of 1914 is a unique time 
in World War One. It's right. the war is fresh. Everyone was told they were going to be home by Christmas, but they're they're they realizing exactly. now they're not. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, 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 it wasn't the it was not yet the knockdown drag out thing that it would be. Right. Um. And I think it's important to understand kind of that context, kind of that context sort of surrounding it. It's also important the 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 troops in the field were largely still regulars at this time. Um, it it wasn't a bunch of conscripts yet. Uh, these were professional mm-hmm. armies that were being fielded at this time, and there was some churn, and there were some reservists brought up and 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 stuff. But it it was a professional army. These weren't conscripts at this point in the mm-hmm. war, right? Um. Which also matters to some extent, um, especially with regard to how it ended, how how the truce came to came to a close. Um, and the story really starts on Christmas Eve. So yeah, I have a clip regarding that. I look at my clip list because I had my clips listed out of order. So I need to look at my clip list and make sure that number one is actually the first one I want to play. Um, here we go. I think it's really important uh, before you start. I think it's really important for people to remember they thought they'd be home by Christmas. Mm-hmm. That is a, a very important part because, like, they all assumed, oh, yeah, this will be, you know, relatively short and we'll be back by Christmas. Uh, and then that obviously did not happen. It's also important, I think, to note, and I'm glad you, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you stopped me because it was also not so much the French that did this. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some Belgians, uh, it was Germans and mostly the yeah. British Yeah, because the French weren't in too good a mood considering they were fighting in France. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> occupied. Uh, they, yeah. they were not in a friendly mood with the Germans, but the British being the sort of detached party that they were, um, mm-hmm. this mostly happened along British lines in the North. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we begin on Christmas Eve with my clip number two. Things really start to change on Christmas Eve. Now, why is that? The German family would celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. That, that's when they would have the big meal. That's when they'd give the presents. A lot of the traditions of the German Christmas uh, are what we fondly think are ours. Christmas trees that come from Germany. On Christmas Eve, the Germans start to celebrate their Christmas. Their post is delivered from home. They've got their letters from their family. They're, that makes them feel warm, even if they're freezing cold. Uh, uh, they've got to, they, they, they start to put up Christmas trees. They're sent lots of Christmas trees from home. They put them up in the trenches. They decorate them with candles. There's lots of accounts that there are Christmas trees appear above their trenches with lights. And, and they start singing carols. Yeah, I just thought that was they start singing carols. <laughs> I was laughing because I, you know, I wondered why my family always does everything for Christmas on Christmas Eve, yep. like open <laughs> presents and stuff. I guess mm-hmm. it's the German. Yeah. Oh yeah. My family's yeah. always done that too. We've always done family Christmas on Christmas Eve and then Santa shit on Christmas Day. Like right. that was always that was always the order that we did things in. We would open yeah. presents from the family and do do our exchanges of gifts and things on Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day. That was the day of honestly, it was kind of just like a day of rest. We would all just kind of hang out and and we open the Santa presents or whatever for you know whatever they were that year, and then we would just kind of chill. If um if I remember correctly, 
Um, I believe, yeah. So as the clip said, I believe the Germans started and on Christmas Eve, the Germans started seeing Christmas carols like Holy Night and a few others. And um, the uh, British soldiers who were, remember, the British soldiers are on the other side of no man's land. They're on the uh, on another trench a ways away, but they can overhear this going on. Yes. And uh, I believe they start singing back, if I remember correctly. Uh, they did? Own, like, yeah. So um, it, you really get this like really touching moment of like, you know, uh, the war just stops for a day or two. Right. And it, it's, it's just a, it's a great moment. And they're, they're yelling back and forth. And one of the things that my, uh, yeah. one of the things that there was a letter that was read in one of the documentaries I was watching that, that said, um, it was written by an Englishman back, back to his family. And he said that they heard basically shouting from the other side saying, uh, tomorrow, you know, shoot, we know shoot. Mm hmm. Like, like, like just basically trying to make an ad hoc ceasefire for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is also, I, I do think it's important though, like I said, the many, many, many cases, uh, of, of the telling of this story have been mythologized and sort of made into fairy tales. It is true that not everywhere along the front, even along British lines, uh, mm -hmm. did this sort of effect happen. Here's another telling of what right. happened on Christmas Eve. Uh, in 1914. I found the Bosch's trench looking like the Thames on Henley Regatta night. They'd got little Christmas trees burning all along the parapet of their trench. No truce had been proclaimed, and I was all for not allowing the blighters to enjoy themselves, especially as they'd killed one of our men that afternoon. But my captain, who hadn't seen our wounded going mad and slowly dying outside the German trenches on the Aisne, wouldn't let me shoot. However, I soon had an excuse as when the Germans fired at us, so I quickly lined up my platoon and had all those Christmas trees down and out. That's from a letter written home by an English soldier. Mm -hmm. So not everyone's feeling Christmassy. <laughs> it's the middle of a war. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting because we were talking at the beginning of the episode about how it's, there's a lot of people that don't know about this event. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason is probably because it's so unbelievable. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, the, the uniqueness of it. Uh, is really 100%. hard to believe. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, you would see in a movie or a story, like some really inspirational type movie that I think a lot of people who are more cynical would think, oh, that's just, that happens in stories if that doesn't happen in real life. But no, this this is something that actually did happen in real life. As small and, you know, isolated as it may be, it's still uh, important. It's still a very important uh, thing to note in history. Now, some some of the other things, too, that I found just in doing some reading was that there were other ceasefires during World War One, like mm -hmm. informal ceasefires, mm -hmm. uh, ones that were just arranged between the soldiers, but nothing as widespread as this and yeah. nothing as, you know, as intense as this. And part of it was because in, in trench warfare, you had this weird situation where soldiers were spending time in close proximity to the enemy. Mm -hmm. for extended periods of time um, in a way that didn't exist. I mean, I've heard some things about like during the civil war in the United States, sometimes the camp, the armies were camped so close that during the night you could hear the enemy like merrymaking and stuff and you could yell back and forth. And and during the American civil war, there were informal ceasefires kind of like this too. So although mm -hmm. it is something that is incredible and, and wonderful and, and, highly documented it's it's not a one-off occasion right yeah. right it's it, it, it's it's special because it's christmas not because this it, isn't it, something soldiers do periodically 
Mm-hmm. And right. and I mean, to to be fair, it was huge. It was a it was a large thing. Oh yeah. So and uh, one of the one of the things that I came across was a lot of people talking about this and 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 sort of the the question being like where were the officers? Where were like the NCOs and the officers who would be I mean it, it this is very much not in their interest to let this kind of thing happen. <laughs> and um it it seems as though based on the things that I watched at least for the NCOs this was non-commissioned officers. This was actually something that they kind of set up because after the night where the Germans are putting up lights and they're putting up uh, candles in, in jars all up along the parapet and they're putting up the Christmas trees and they're singing carols and, and the British are singing with them after a certain point. Um, again, this is, in, this is sporadically sort of a, a down the line. It's not the entire British line, but, you know, smatterings and spatterings of this is going on. And when the morning comes, it's Christmas Day and it seems like everyone kind of... Not everyone, but where this happened, they kind of started out with funeral services. And I have a clip about this right here. In many places, the initial motivation for the Christmas Day truce is to bury the dead. At about 9 a.m. on Christmas Day, an English officer, accompanied by two of his men, came across and asked for a ceasefire until midnight to bury the dead. This was willingly granted. The officer came out. We gravely saluted each other, and I then pointed to nine dead Germans lying in midfield and suggested burying them, which both sides proceeded to do. We gave them some wooden crosses for them, which completely won them over, and soon the men were on the best terms and laughing. There were, there were funeral services held down the line in no man's yeah. land where they were burying their dead. Um... And these were mixed funeral services, too. There are a couple of accounts of real funeral services with people giving prayers in German and in English yeah. for the dead. That's quite a way to start your Christmas Day, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It, like, what, a, what a powerful moment. Because like, you have uh, British helping bury Germans and then Germans helping bury uh, British soldiers. Uh, it's, it's really powerful. It really is. Um. That's and that's how that's how the Christmas Day truce kind of began. It started with yeah, let's collect our dead and let's let's try and clean up a little bit. Um, uh huh. Yeah. And before long, everyone's kind of talking, and, uh, and I, I say everyone, everyone where this was happening, um, right. is exchanging gifts. They're exchanging. Uh, uh, oh, there's a there's. Oh, it seems like in a, in a lot of the accounts that I was looking at. It seems like the British kind of had like canned meat to exchange yes. for cigars. I, I, like yes, yes. <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily even even value gift exchange, but right. But there was What's they, the thought that counts. Oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. Especially in a fucking war zone. <laughs> yeah. But that's their so they they were exchanging gifts and they were hanging out and 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 communicating in whatever way they could. There was a lot there were a lot of accounts of people kind of like signing to try and communicate and but a lot of Germans knew English, um and yeah. so there was a lot of communication in English, uh back and forth between the men and and this fraternization this evil fraternization, uh became sort of a day where they just hung out together. Yeah, they they played a, a few sports, I think, mm-hmm. uh, um, if I remember correctly, and yeah. Oh, well, some of the British historians I was watching were very upset 
that there is this myth of a big football game and stuff, and and they were really really upset that there wasn't like a like okay. I don't give a shit about so- I don't care about soccer. So uh-huh. the there's this there's this this idea that they played football in no man's land, right? They played soccer in no man's land, which mm-hmm. is I mean, it's not like it was a big organized soccer game. I didn't imagine right. when I first heard that. I didn't imagine they had goals and rules and referees. Right. It but, was just like throwing a ball around. Yeah, they're just yeah, it would be just like tossing a football around for for yeah. Americans. But they had a they, they the British historians kept calling it a kickabout, and they were very upset with the misconception that there were like rules and goals and referees in these few places where they did this. <laughs> it's one of those British things ever. Like, you know, instead of that, like not following those rules. Well, if they played an actual game, then you know, if one side gets upset over you know perceived light or something, <laughs> mm, then they right. might just start shooting again. That's mm-hmm. right. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. But they were the there were some man there were some there were some fucking cynical Brits. I was watching this uh this documentary and and these British historians are so cynical about this whole event. But um which I guess I don't know. Is it a cultural I don't know. But they were um but they were describing this these these ad hoc kind of quote unquote soccer games that it was really just, you know, you know, 12 or 13 guys who kicking around a soccer ball at one spot on the front. And this happened in a couple of places is kind of how it seems mm-hmm. to have been. Um, but these guys were shooting at each other the day before. So I think it's kind of important. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like the moment itself is extremely powerful, uh, like on a, a, like a deep human level. Right. So I think, you know, it encapsulates this idea that, you know, when we're talking about war is that, it just doesn't have to happen. Yeah. Like, but like, as unrealistic as we might think it is, both sides could just say, no, I'm not going to shoot the other person. Well, that's kind of like, how World War One ended. Like, like right. the, the end of World War One is is where guys are turning around and shooting their officers. Like, the, like World War One didn't yeah. end because everybody just kind of said, all right, uh, the uh, the Germans lose. Let's go home. It was, there was an actual, there was an, uh, to hear Dan Carlin tell it, it's like the intellectual contagion of, of communism was in the, in the trenches and they were an intellectual contagion in that, in that it's an ideology that spreads and they were, um, starting to kind of see the guys on the other side of no man's land as the working class, just like them. And Mm -hmm. there was a, it, it wasn't like this across the board, but there was a sort of a turning against the war machine of world war one by the guys in the trenches that sort of forced the close of the war, uh, in a lot of ways. That's not universally true across the entire war, but, um, that was a major effect that led to the close of world war one was the fact that the guys at the front just said, fuck this, we're done. We want to go home. Yep. So I just couldn't drink imagine, coffee. I, I couldn't imagine being in that situation. No, me after, after the long years of war and not not just the long years of war, but being in the most miserable, bloodiest, most violent conflict the world mm-hmm. has ever seen. Um in in a new type of war, really. Yep. And in the misery of it just uh is unfathomable. But it yeah. makes sense too why, especially at the beginning of that thing, when there's not as much bad blood as there could be, um, 
as professional soldiers. Um, the, the it makes sense that they would take the opportunity to uh, just sort of relax and and uh, have a have a Christmas, even if it's with the guys on the other side. Yeah, I I think it's also like just as you were saying, but it's it's very powerful to be even even if even given that they're professional soldiers, still the fact that they were you know as you said they were shooting each other just the day before, yep. and they're just like you know what we're not doing this today. We don't have to do this today. And yeah, we just don't have to. Yeah. And you know, at a certain point, even if the officers, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how many officers were in favor or opposed to it, but even if the officers were opposed to it, um, there was no, like, they couldn't stop them all. Right. If they right. all decided to drop their arms and they're like, we're not going to do this. The officers realistically have no power to stop them. So it, it was, it, it's just a, a really beautiful moment in human history. Absolutely. And it didn't happen again through the war. There was not another, yeah. uh, sort of widespread, there may have been sporadic ones, but I, I yeah, there was I'm not sure there another sporadic truces, but not, a. Yeah, not like this. There was not a big sort of Christmas truce that you could write home about, you know, that kind of thing. Right. That that wasn't really um, anything that happened again, and it kind of had to be forced. There's a, there is a, um, and and as a result too of a lot of bad blood that builds up between two sides of a conflict mm-hmm. that goes on for years. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I do have a clip here from that uh, from that uh, IWM video about about sort of how this never happened again and 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 the the causes behind that um and i think it's very very interesting the christmas truce was unique and nothing like it happened again to that scale and the reasons for this are varied immediately after the truce the high command of both sides stepped in to make sure that fraternization and ceasefires like this would not happen in the same way. But also, in the long term, the real reason that truces like this didn't happen is that the war changed in the way in which it was being fought. As the war progressed, there's a more centralized method of command. Those in the front line would have been forced into constant aggression. You would have had artillery and trench mortar units constantly going. And also, of course, as the war progressed, it took a far nastier turn. So you get things like gas warfare introduced, increasing number of civilian casualties. Uh, You also get incidents like the sinking of the Lusitania. The temptation, I suppose, to empathize with the enemy and the desire to fraternize with them changed dramatically from 1915 onwards. So there's the, that's kind of, that's, that's his perspective on why this kind of thing never happened again is because eventually you just get so much bad blood. And, I, and that's why I wanted to start off by saying that this is the very beginning of trench warfare, basically the very beginning of the war, because right. there, there wasn't all that bad blood. There wasn't all the, frankly, the propaganda, um, that was certainly there, but it hadn't been around for years by the time December, 1915 rolls around. It's been since July 1914, they've been at war, and there's been propaganda, and there's been uh, attrition, and there's been uh, casualties, uh, enough bad blood that you probably aren't going to want to do a gift exchange with the Germans. You know what I mean? 
Exactly. And I think it's very important how he talked about how like the warfare actually changed, like disincentivized the soldiers from ever doing this again. Yes. Um, that, that is very interesting. And Patrick, that actually goes very nicely into like what you've talked about, why, uh, why Johnny can't kill. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that jumps out to me the most about this is that the ceasefire talks really start happening after Christmas Eve and the event on Christmas Eve that seems to me to have charged this situation was the singing of Christmas carols, but also the fact that the allied forces could see, um, they could see the enemy being human and it's that humanization, which is the really key part of what allows the ceasefire to happen the next day. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah, well, like you hear your enemy, you know, singing Christmas carols, you you know, at first, you know, because remember, days before they were shooting your friends. Yeah. Right? And now you see that, oh, wait, these people are just like me, you know, and no matter who started it, you know, you've shot their friends, too. And, you know, they're still trying to be, uh, uh, you know, joyous on Christmas. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe these people aren't so different from us after all, you know. <laughs> There's uh, also a, there's, there's something to be said too for the idea that who started it was a Serb in Sarajevo. Like this wasn't, right, exactly. this wasn't the same yeah. kind of situation where it was like, uh, you know, Germany just invaded for no reason. There was a whole, right. a whole domino effect of things that led to this conflict. And none of the guys on the front really like wanted to be there. <laughs> right. It wasn't, it, yeah. it, it, it wasn't some, I mean, of course, this is always pr- part of propaganda and stuff, but it didn't come from like some weird ultra nationalist place, like yeah. like you hear from World War II. Um, I, also, on that point, a, a lot of people like when people like are like super into like war, uh, wars and history. World War II is usually generally like what most people gravitate towards, and for obvious reasons. I'm not trying to. I, I'm definitely not trying to downplay World War II. Sure, I, I've always been almost more fascinated with World War One. Just because it was the start of an entirely new type of warfare um, on yes. a, a scale unheard of before. And it was like one of the like just the way it was fought was probably one of the most terrifying things uh, a soldier could imagine. Right. Because you have the introduction of like uh, all these new types of warfare, like tanks, uh, gas warfare, um, all these new things that were just never really seen before on a wide scale you hear it described as the violent birth of the modern world and i think yes. there's there's a lot yeah. of truth to that yeah and the uh i did want to point out too some of the cynicism of some of these british historians there was one guy in one of the documentaries i watched who was very careful to talk a lot about how like this wasn't like personal for them they were just professionals having a day off and then they went right back to killing each other you know <laughs> 2 3 days later they were right back to killing each other and they didn't really care about this and this wasn't like a human moment yeah, this was a that seems I'm, like a very cynical take it's for them it's very That's cynical like, <laughs> it's like if i remember correctly if i remember correctly i'm i'm not 100% on this but if i remember correctly uh, uh, the generals forced the soldiers to shoot back uh, they like actually like coerce them to shoot back at the uh, uh, opposing side at some places uh, on the front. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it was yeah. different. It, it, it sort of spun back up and I didn't clip this, but he, there was one guy talking about kind of how the war spun back up along the front after this. Mm-hmm. And for, in some places it was, you know, a day later, maybe two days later, one of your guys gets popped and it's like, Oh, it's back on. Um, right. 
And that happened on both sides. In some places, it was because the shelling started. The artillery guys... Yeah, the shelling. Yeah, the artillery guys weren't part of the truce. So, like, like the artillery guys were still back behind the line firing shells. So when the shelling starts again, uh, war's back. Um, exactly, yeah. So it started up in different ways along different places. And yeah, in some places, I'm sure, they were, they were, they were told, no, no, you got to get back to fighting. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Which I find to be the more interesting aspect of this. Because it seems like if just nobody kills anyone in, as far as along the front of this war after this event... And in these right. places, again, right, because the, the front wasn't – it wasn't a uniform thing. It was different in different spots. But in the places where this happens, it seems like if if nobody shoots again, like the the war's over in right. that little There's chunk no incentive. of – Yeah. Yeah. There's no incentive. Once once peace has been established at that point, there is no incentive outside, um, you know, outside influence causing it to happen for them to shoot back at each other again. Right. Right. It's like, oh, you know, we've we've made all these human connections with these people and now we're just going to shoot at them for uh, just because, you know, yeah, that that seems highly unlikely to me. And like, as you said, like from what I've read. Uh, the shellings really like caused it to pop off again, like outside influence, uh, the people who are not a part of this truce instigating more conflict. Well, to that point, one of the things that one of the things that kept it going was when they would cycle guys back in to the front. Like like you had you had churn a lot, especially with the uh, with the yes. British. And so they would pull out the guys who were at the front and bring in fresh reservists or bring yes. in uh, yes. professionals who hadn't been there, uh, uh, regulars who hadn't been up there. And they're, they want to fight. They're going to war. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, now, Patrick, you've, uh, we can talk more about like, uh, why, why Johnny can't kill if you want, because like this, like heavily ties into like the whole Christmas truth. So what you, you made this documentary, uh, what is like the, the, what's it about like the thesis behind it? And like, what, what is your conclusion that you draw from it, from the information that you compiled? The the conclusion really is is that there exists an innate and biological resistance mm-hmm. at the heart of man towards taking fellow human life. Yes, and this is a very like anti-Hobbesian view because most like if, yeah. if you listen to like a Hobbesian <laughs> or something, they will tell you that man's inherent nature is brutal and violent and warlike. And, you know, that the peaceful cooperation can just not happen spontaneously on its own. Which is is really funny because, um, you know, there's a few sources for the origin of this thesis. And the first one is empirical. And it, it, it came about during World War II. There was this general called uh, General S.L.A. Marshall. And they called him SLAM for short with his initials. <laughs> and he, he conducted a a study during the war of where he would – go around to different units and he would poll them. And the question was in any engagement with the enemy, how many soldiers in your unit would take any part of that engagement with their rifles? And the answer was really astounding because it found that only 20% of the men polled. And again, this was a huge survey involving hundreds or thousands of different units where SLA Marshall, you know, he had like census people go with him and take and ask this question. And throughout it was uniform that the firing rate was 20%. And this caused a panic, a huge <laughs> panic. 
Um, and, and the first thing that the U.S. military set out to do after discovering this was to make sure that they got those firing rates up to as close to 100% as they could. And some people um, contest SLA Marshall's findings, and they say that his methods weren't exactly completely scientific and didn't hold up to certain rigor. Um, and... I mean, to that, it's you talk about exactly what the methods were, saying that, you know, the, this was a huge sample size that he drew from um, and that whether, you know, you could debate the accuracy a little bit, maybe by some percentage points, but 20 is a very low percentage. And it's obvious and very clear, a definitive fact that the military took it incredibly seriously. And right. so you see firing rates after that go up in Korea, they were much higher. And then in Vietnam, they were like 80%. And then now firing rates are very close to 100%. The One of the things you pointed out in your documentary that I found so fascinating um, was um, the kill rate uh, between soldiers in the Civil War, I believe, uh, based on the distance they were from the enemy. And I, I think you, you said, I don't remember the exact percentages, but essentially it was the closer they were the more they missed the shot and the farther they were, the more accurate, like the, the more likely they were to actually hit the target and kill them. Uh, something to that. Uh, well, so I, I could read, um, I could read this here. So Dave, yeah. this all comes from Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who is an army ranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually, after he retired, he started doing these consulting services teaching because he identified this resistance to killing And Mm -hmm. what he does with his career is try to condition people out of that so they can kill without mercy. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) he's saying like, yeah, this happened, but it's a bad thing. Uh, Yeah. And and, I mean, I guess his view is a little bit more nuanced because, I mean, he's been saying that like he's, he goes around to police departments and teaches this warrior methodology. I've seen video. I've seen videos of this. I think. Yeah. I hate it. it. He calls it killology. Oh, of course. Study of killing. And he said, one, like, he said outrageous things like, you know, the day, the night after killing someone, you'll have the best sex of your life. He said shit like that. Oh, my um, God. So, so. It sounds a lot like but, rationalizing your own sociopathy, but okay. Well, in the, <laughs> his, view, his view of the world is that, well, you know, there's sheepdogs and there's the sheep. And yeah. we need sheepdogs that, you know, will protect the sheep. And to protect our society, yeah. we need people that we designate to go out and kill. And in a lot of actually a lot, to be fair, a lot of what he talks about is this Jungian thing where, you know, inside of us is a monster and we need mm-hmm. to learn how to tame the monster. So you, you view the darkest side of yourself when you go out and you kill in war. But part of what Grossman's thing is, is, well, how do we take that soldier back and reintegrate them? and make them healthy. How do you, how do you, how do you fix, how do you put that back in the box? Exactly. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to say before I forget, and then I'll, I'll respond to your question, Ace. I'm sorry for the, no, you're fine. I tried, but this is very important because we were talking about Hobbes and man's inherent, mm-hmm. uh, the way that man is inherently. Um, one thing that Grossman talks about is how throughout the animal kingdom, what you don't see are species killing their own, not on widespread levels. Right. And in some sense that makes 
man very unique. Uh, not not that not that it doesn't exist at all in nature, but the yeah. general frame is that species don't go around killing wholesale. The same not in widespread people. warfare against each other. Yeah. Now there might be you know isolated incidents of of killing yeah. and, and mate competition or something like that. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, when there is competition between interspecies intraspecies competition, you would have like when two deer spar back and forth, when, when the bucks go after each other during the rut, they, they mm-hmm. fight each other and their horns lock and they, they push each other around and they do this to exhaustion. And at some point, or lions do this too. At mm-hmm. some point, one is the victor and one loses. And when that one loses, they show their belly. They show, yeah. they become vulnerable. And that is the sign for the victor to stop. The victor does not kill. Right. Um, right. And and so it's really about, you know, there's in interspecies fighting, there's the fight or flight response. While Dave Grossman, he posits that when you're uh, intraspecies fighting, there's posturing, there's fighting, there's flight, and there's submission. And so posturing is a lot of what, and this is how it ties into this uh, firing study that, that Ace was talking about. Posturing is a lot of what warfare is. And that was a lot mm-hmm. of, and you can see this throughout history too, with, with the uniforms, with the plumes on people's hats, going back, you know, their helmets, going back to ancient times, the hoplites. That's all the, 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 the yeah. Stahlhelm, right? Was it the Stahlhelm that had the, uh, or am I thinking of the Pickelhelm? That had the spike on the middle of it, the Germans wore. Making yourself Austro-Hungarians. appear bigger appear bigger and appear more ruthless than you actually are is a big part of it. But specifically as it relates to the firing, uh, the firing rates, uh, Grossman has this to say, right? So uh, for instance, this is my article citing Grossman. I write, for instance, Grossman recites a well-documented study of Prussian infantry accuracy and firing rates. This study found that using smoothbore muskets, Prussian infantry scored 25% hits at 225 yards, 40% hits at 150 yards, and 60% hits at 75 yards when firing (laughs) at a 100-foot by 6-foot target. So with those firing rates, Grossman concludes, thus at 75 yards, a 200-man regiment should be able to hit as many as 120 enemy soldiers in the first volley. If four shots were fired each minute, a regiment could potentially kill or wound as many as 450 enemy soldiers in the first minute of combat. So I write further, with these established accuracy numbers, casualty rates in that era should have been near 100%, given that, for instance, the average American Civil War engagement took place at 30 yards. So conversely, death rates in that war, the Civil War, were as low as one to two men per minute, and engagements <laughs> lasted for hours. So where were all these rounds going if right. we know that accuracy is very high in this era? Where are these rounds going? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that would reflect SLA Marshall's results, basically, that um, – only 20% of men actually fired their weapon in combat. But when you have line combat like this kind of taking place in the American Civil War and a bit earlier, you do have more um, you have more uh, accountability because you're very close to your, your comrades. 
Mm-hmm. So what would happen in those conflicts would be, you know, you'd have people who faked firing, but you would also have people just aiming above the enemy. Firing into right. the air. Posturing. Yeah. Posturing. Yeah. And and obviously the idea is that because they're closer, they can see the other person's face, right? That's yeah, kind of yeah. like, you know, and therefore they, uh, they're they less likely because if, if you can see this other person is just another human versus another monster, right? And this is often what you get in like military conditioning and warfare is you have to d- demonize the enemy to a point where they're practically not human or they're like a demon wearing a human skin. And that's how you have to approach uh, um, the enemy. Uh, yeah, in in dehumanization is a big part of it. Uh, also, conditioning is a big part of it. This mm-hmm. idea of, and this is how the the U.S. military specifically got those firing rates up, is that they hijacked human psychology and used. I don't know. I'm not a psychology person, so I don't know if it's Skinnerian or Pavlovian conditioning. Uh, where I, I know Pavlov is where there's a stimulus and there's a reaction. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So what they did is they they conditioned soldiers in something called reflexive fire training, where when you are trained in the U.S. military, it's not it's not always like this when you have fire training, but part of the training is to go on a firing range and engage targets as they pop up. So they train you that you you know you put your you put the your crosshairs on. Uh, basically a target that pops up from the ground and the target is usually in a human silhouette mm-hmm. and you're supposed to immediately draw on it and squeeze the trigger. And if they train you to do that, then when you're in combat uh, and part of this is video games too, is that mm-hmm. we basically all of our young men who play call of duty in, in the world are being uh, they're being conditioned to squeeze the trigger as soon as the target presents itself. Right. And it's not, it's not that call of duty causes violence, but it lowers your, your, uh, your inhibitions. You, you might be, you might be more conditioned for that kind of response. It's one of those things that when you're in the situation, right? I had a friend. And you're also giving rewards for people who do well in the oh, military yeah, yeah, yeah. who do, uh, are proficient at this. So that's another, like, you know, a carrot on the stick, uh, type thing where it's like, if you do this, you'll be uh, rewarded in, in some capacity. Yeah. You know, and I, I was, I was talking to, um, uh, biting the bullet guys about this. Um, and we were, t- talking about their training in the Marine Corps mm-hmm. and how there's a, there's a rifleman ribbon yep. that you get, or there's a, a citation, not a citation. What do they call that? Commendation. A commendation that you get for having, being proficient in, in the, your rifleman training. Yep. And if you don't have that, it's incredibly embarrassing yep. from what I understand. So. The, the rifleman and marksmanship ribbons, those kinds of things. And there's also, why well, I had a buddy who was uh, a Marine and he, I was talking to him. Uh, he got medically discharged after being in a car accident. And I was talking to him about sort of when my brother was actually, uh, you know, getting ready to, to join. And I was talking to my friend who was a Marine. And he said, your brother's going to hate it. And I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, because he said, just as an example, he says, I never once had like a racist thought, like a real like racist thought about anybody. And he says, the Marines taught me to be racist. I, I learned how to be racist in the Marines. 
um, particularly toward uh, uh, Arabs or people who look like Arabs. <laughs> but but also just in a general sense, I learned racism from the military. And that kind of blew my hair back a little bit because I was like, of course, of course, of course they do that. They have to. It's it's also, you know, uh, to your point, of course, Patrick, it, you know, everyone has this uh, idea. And I think I, I, I guess they learn it from school, like in, in civics or whatever. But this idea that man has this inherent nature that is brutal and violent. And again, we're not saying like for listeners, we're not saying that these traits don't exist within humans, but it's not, it's not a total flat universal thing among humanity itself. But it, it seems very intuitive to your point that if, if man was truly like this at base at the, at the default, why would this conditioning be necessary in the first place? Why would the military have to condition uh, all these soldiers uh, uh, or would-be soldiers to act like this beforehand if it wasn't already the default. Yeah, exactly. And I think that evidence exists in abundance. I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory or you know some kind of misunderstanding of military doctrine. I, I think this is something they really have grappled with and had actual sit-down you know, talks about and have planned out in detail. Yes. Uh, maybe they don't recognize exactly what it is in these bare terms per se mm-hmm. but to them. It's just a matter of like, well, firing rates are down and we got to get them up. You know, we need fire superiority. Right. And how right. do we do that? You know, I actually have um, on my bookshelf here. I have one of the, the original SLA Marshall study. It's called men against fire. It was published. Uh, now I don't know if it's the first edition, but it's an old book. So and <laughs> uh, some military, actually there's someone gifted it to someone else and wrote inside the front cover and they were military people. So I wonder, you know, how special that is, but yeah. yeah. So another, another part of this too is um, you, you were talking about racism and some of it is I included in my documentary are these slogans that are taught at basic training where your drill instructor would make you have these chants like, Ooh, ah, I'm going to slap your mama. Ooh, ah, I'm going to slap your daddy. Like beat him up, beat him up or something like that. And there's others like singing songs about napalm sticking to kids and shouting yeah. things like kill, kill, kill. When you stab the bayonet into the dummy uh, and doing things like that. What makes the, what makes the grass grow? Yeah. What makes the, the green grass gl- grow? Uh, yeah. Blood Sergeant blood, you know, blood makes the green yeah. grass grow. So stuff like that. And I have read that they're trying to phase that out of official doctrine in the military. But I, you know, the Marines that I've talked to has said that, yeah, you know, off the record, we sang those songs. Absolutely. The kids and stuff. Right. Yeah. Another part about it is diffusion of responsibility or perceived responsibility. And, and I think that's really important as we get into the era of mechanized warfare. Absolutely. Everyone knows that it's it's the artillery that takes the most lives in in combat like this and in, in mm-hmm. bombing campaigns, and we see this even now in Ukraine. It's the artillery that causes most of the casualties, and part of that is Grossman talks about as these team operated weapons that if 
subjectively, if you are a part of a team operating a weapon, in your mind you justify this diffusion of responsibility. It's the same thing as yes. like firing squads where they'll line up five people to shoot at one person and they'll give two people the bullet. Right. Or right. weapons. It's and or like if you're part of an artillery piece and you're just the guy that's swabbing down the bore in between shots, do you really view yourself as being responsible exactly. for all the deaths? You know? Yeah. Whereas if you're the guy pulling the lanyard or if you're the pilot in the Enola Gay and, right. or you're the waste gunner in the Enola Gay and you probably justify it by a few things, you know, saying that, well, we have to prevent, you know, uh, we have to prevent a land invasion of Japan mm-hmm. and people have killed so many of our guys and I'm protecting everybody back home. That's part of it. But the other part about it is that, if you're flying at you know thirty thousand feet in the Enola Gay, and you press a butt or you give the signal to the bomb bay operator to drop the bomb, you're not there at ground zero right, watching right. the bomb fall and seeing people being eviscerated. You're not even there walking the rubble after that happens. Yeah. You might not even have viewed the pictures. You know? <laughs> right. You might have it's, specifically it's really- avoided that. <laughs> yeah. The way you talked about like uh, dividing the responsibility, it, it's very much akin to like uh, the division of labor in the production of goods, right? So like if you make something on your own, right, it's much more costly, but you feel responsible for it at the very end, right? Because you put ever like uh, theoretically you put every piece together, you can say that's your own. If you're in like a car assembly factory and you're just your job is you make this one cog that goes into this bigger piece that goes into an even bigger construction. Uh, you are not necessarily going to feel responsible for the car itself, right? You know what I mean? You're not going to feel responsible for the whole thing. So just like the division of labor in the production of goods lowers people's uh, feeling of responsibility for the final product, it does the exact same thing in the production of bads. Uh, (laughs) um, Well, it is very insidious. Is this really an argument for capitalism? (laughs) Well, yeah, see, see, that is is a good point now that you said that. But, you know, yeah, it's like it can be used in very insidious ways if you, like, you know, divide responsibility for moral wrongs. Well, what you're really doing is you're alienating people from their labor. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's, It's kind of the same idea, though. The, this, this, I mean, we saw that if you watched the, um, if you watched the WikiLeaks video that really popped WikiLeaks off, the the yeah. video of the um, collateral murder, yes, that the was. collateral murder video, um, that f- I think fucked me up for life. I saw it when I was like fourteen. <laughs> I was one of those sick kids where, like, maybe I don't know if I'm a sociopath or what, but like, I really enjoy watching like watch people die. Live leak. It was live leak videos where uh, where somebody gets yeah. sucked into a loom or some shit. Yeah, those yeah. are those are yeah. fucked. But it's it's weirdly fascinating. I, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have all these things kind of coming together: um, the diffusion of responsibility, the dehumanization, and the the uh, the social pressure too. Of mm-hmm. where throughout history, you know. Um, Grossman would talk about how the most effective military units were the ones, generally speaking, were the ones who figured out how to deal and get rid of this inhibition to killing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I hope I'm using that word inhibition correctly. Yes. Um, But um, 
So like the Romans would have special training where they would teach all their soldiers to stab with their swords instead of slashing because a slash is usually just a superficial wound, but a, but a, a stab, you know, it doesn't have to be very deep, but it's generally lethal if you get it in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's things like the, um, the, the hoplites where they would be in their, um, Jeez, what is what is the name of that formation? The phalanx. The phalanx formation. Thank you. Where they would work together as a team, and they would have a you know a CO or a supervisor that was very close, and so you're getting the diffusion of responsibility, and you're getting the social pressure of having your your comrades right next to you, and your officer yeah. close by to hold you accountable. To your point, and, uh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, sorry. I was just gonna say. Uh, now, I, I don't know how much of this is just me reading into it too much. And I, like, I, I, truthfully, I, there's no, I, I don't think there's a way for me to know. But certainly the, with the phalanx formation, they have, the, they have, with, so if anyone who doesn't know what a phalanx formation is, it's essentially a wall of shields uh, that can essentially protect your back line and your front line and every, every like conceivable position, like from infantry. And you have uh, uh, soldiers with spears as well as shields, right? So uh, I, I'm interested um whether the phalanx position had and the, the formation of it had anything to do with lowering the potential visibility and uh, direct physical contact with killing the other soldiers. Now, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Obviously, it is strategically better than most uh, most uh, formations at that time. But I wonder if there was also a component where it was easier to kill them because the uh, the spears were longer and the shields can block the view of the soldiers as well. So stay behind your shield yeah. and thrust your spear, Correct. and you just turn all your guys into a pincushion. Like you turn all your Correct. you turn your whole unit into something that looks like a pincushion. I'm not saying that it's, I'm not saying that's why, but I think it's a, a possibility. Um, that, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you yeah. specifically with the spear and yes. um, not just the spear, but also you know bows and arrows really. Uh, yeah. lengthen the killing distance because that's another factor in it. But the spear itself was incredibly effective, not because it was the superior weapon per se, but mm-hmm. the distance between, I mean, how, how intimate is it to stab a piece of metal into another right. person's chest? Especially when you're hiding right. behind a shield mostly, right? Yeah. That yeah. Too, and you're blocking but, view. Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm even talking just about in a general like, sense. Oh, just spear. You yeah, walk yeah, yeah, you're up right. to someone, you yes. take your buck knife, and you drive it into their chest. You right. look into their eyes as the life runs out of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the psychology of that you even see in true, you know, true crime stuff because yep, yeah. detectives and invent or uh, not inventors, <laughs> detectives and policemen will go through and talk about profiling serial killers. And they talk about how stabbing someone in the chest, you know, or suffocating someone, wrapping your hands around someone's throat and squeezing the life out of them for minutes at a time really goes towards the depravity of the killer. Yes. You have to be determined to do that. These methods matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. And and that that leads me to another really important thing about this whole, whole process is the psychology itself of killing and taking another life. So usually when you look through the, when you, just because there is an, a resistance towards taking human life doesn't mean that people don't overcome that resistance. Right. And you see that a lot, especially when soldiers 
finally do their job after, you know, months and months, maybe years of training. They don't get an opportunity to be in combat. They get in the situation. They have a hostile. They pull up a beat on them and they blow them away, right? They actually, uh, contrarily, they feel exuberation. Mm -hmm. They, They get this intense high exhilaration. They get compliments from their peers, you know, get some that kind of uh, Marine Corps attitude, mm-hmm. you get the jokes and the bravado. But after that, there is a disgust when, when it really sets in. And I'm not saying this happens in every case because there is a population of, of society that are sociopaths and psychopaths, people that don't yeah. have these inhibitions. But for most people, after you kill someone else, after the high wears off, you feel revulsion. And sometimes it, it's a, Sometimes it doesn't take very long to feel this, but oftentimes you will have accounts of people becoming physically ill and vomiting after they kill someone else and realize Mm -hmm. what they've done. Yep. Uh, And it's very intense, and it leads to this whole concept of of moral injury, which is something that's separate. Um, So I've talked to Lori Calhoun, who is a senior fellow at uh, the Libertarian Institute, and she... Mm -hmm. She has real academic credentials, and she has written books about this. Uh, the killing, uh, we kill because we can, is her book. Um, from I think something about it focuses on drone warfare, and she has corrected me to say that um, PTSD and moral injury are not completely separate things; that they usually coexist. But my oh, understanding, sure. and she. I need to have a conversation with her about this where we really get down to it. But my initial understanding from reading What Have We Done, which is a book specifically about moral injury in the terror wars. But my understanding is that moral injury is a emotional reaction and that PTSD is a physiological reaction. And that PTSD mm, sure. would be yeah. the engagement right. of your fight or flight response because of danger or a stimulus and moral injury is the invisible wounds, the psychic injury that is inflicted on a soldier. Feelings of feelings of basically moral injury is that as humans, we all believe generally speaking that the world is a good place where good people exist and our good things are supposed to happen to us. And we are supposed Mm -hmm, to do good things. And of course this is not, in every case, but so when you do things or see things done to people that does not comport with that general rule that we grow up with and the reality that we are are raised to believe most of us through our life, that the world is a good place where we're supposed to do good things and good things are supposed to happen to people to see things like a child being blown into pieces or to yourself kill a child or for yeah. your buddy to helplessly die while you sit and watch without being able to do anything about it, it fractures your soul and yeah. basically destroys you emotionally to the point where you can't rectify your prior self with your experiences. Right. Right. And I mean, most people, unless you're like born into like a war zone or something like that, right? Most people regard war as a notable thing and not the default, right? 
Like when war happens, it's some horrible event. It's not taken as, oh, yeah, this is just what happens, right? So I think that goes to your point that, yeah, people generally view, like, whether they admit it or not, they have this at least subconscious understanding that, yeah, um, the world is generally a good place. People are generally at least not evil um, at the very least, and that um, these things should not happen uh, generally when they happen to them, um, at least. Yeah. So, well, some people will go around, you know, and cynically just uh-huh. say like, well, you know, mankind is inherently evil and people suck or whatever. But when you right. walk down the street, the guy next to you doesn't yeah. stab you in the chest because you, right. you, just, you don't think, oh, well, this is just what happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it because that people are just evil and that's the way it that's is. That's what I was, I, right. I was going to say. Even if people say they don't believe it, everybody lives as if they do. Right. right. <laughs> Everybody lives as if they do believe that the world is a generally safe and fine place and 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 most people are not out to kill you. Like that's just yeah. that's how we live. And and yeah. I have yet to see even from people who would uh pronounce that that mankind is evil and all this other stuff, they don't live like right. that. <laughs> and this is the the weird thing, the disgusting thing about war and war making is that there is this belief that war is this completely separate thing. Yes. Where the regular Ugh. rules of morality do not apply. Yeah. It's like, oh, if I went into a shopping mall and there was like some shooter running through the shopping mall and I just took my machine gun and pla- just uh, shot shots into everyone in the mall to stop that killer, everyone would view me as a murderer. Like right. everyone. Uh, but if you go and you drop a bomb onto a wedding because you think a terrorist might be there, oh, well, that's just foreign policy. You know, yeah. that's just, uh, it's just it, that's just yeah, we have collateral damage. And this this comes up every time yeah. this comes up every time um, Ace stirs the the uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki pot, which he likes to do. And I, <laughs> I find it very entertaining um, every time. Every time uh, that happens, there's a cadre of people who have taken that stance that that war is a universe unto itself, wherein. Like you said, uh, Patrick, the, the 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 normal rules of morality simply don't apply, and humans don't work like that. Right, <laughs> right. It's we, like we the reason they believe that, that. The reason a person believes that, and this is my opinion, the reason they believe that is because they have to believe it for their own sanity. Yes. If they don't believe that for their right. own sanity, then they will not be able to look upon the horror of what it actually is. So it's uh, it's almost like a defense mechanism. They have to believe this because the reality is too horrifying to look at, honestly. Especially yeah. if they served. Or right. Fought. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is the this is one of the things actually I, w- I was going to mention that there's there's a there's a school of historical thought and I'm not a historian. I don't know enough about historians, but I know that there is a school of, of historical sort of uh, military historians whose position is that especially in the era of hand to hand fighting, ancient warfare. Um, and, and historic warfare that, that before gunpowder, when everyone's fighting with, uh, sticks that are sharp, basically, in whatever form that takes, be it a sword or whatever, when everyone's fighting with sticks that are sharp, um, this school of historical thought basically says these engagements in this, in this era were not big mythical conflagrations. They were very short. And your, your, whichever side would route would route quickly. And, um, these, these engagements, when, if you had two lines that clashed, the engagement would be lucky to last a minute and a half, two minutes. 
before somebody routed and uh and of course this changes depending upon the size of the armies and things but but before very quickly someone would route and you point out as well in uh in in the documentary that the route is where most of the casualties occur is in the route um whichever side has their backs turned that's when that's when they take the most casualties right yeah and um, there, there's uh, some quotes in, in Dave Grossman's book, and I, I don't know exactly who he's quoting, but basically saying that before mechanized warfare, the era of gunpowder, mm-hmm. medieval battles were no more dangerous than a game of football or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's, I don't... That's, the, that's kind of what that school of historians sort of thinks, is that you might clash, two armies might clash, but as soon as everyone kind of realizes what the fuck they're doing, somebody runs away. Right. And also, also, at least in a lot of medieval battles, not everyone, not, I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them, it would be two armies going into an abandoned field and fighting each other. Right. It's not like warfare in the middle of some cosmopolitan center or something like that with a bunch of civilians in the middle. Now, obviously, you know, there were obviously civilian deaths and casualties and stuff like that in medieval times as well, but it was much less, uh, much fewer casualties. Well, that also would have happened and, after you won, like, like you win a siege battle right. and you you sack the town like that's where your casualties right. from civilians come in right but it, it's I, I find it interesting you talked about the difference between guys that serve and guys that don't and and closing that box and I, there's an interesting thing where uh i both of my grandfathers were in the military during vietnam one of them actually went to vietnam and the other one was getting ready to go when vietnam ended and the uh the the of course my grandfather who was actually in vietnam i i don't know how much of his issues is from that and how much of it is just his personality but he's not a well man um my my other grandfather who did not fight wasn't a particularly well man either and this is in part uh, exemplified in a story that i was told by my grandfather his my grandmother his wife she woke him one time he was sleeping and he was, I can't, I can't remember why exactly she was waking him up. It could have been that it was the morning. But she was trying to wake him up, and he tackled her and started choking her. And this was not long after he had gotten back from, I believe he was staging in Germany before going to Vietnam. And this was not long after he had gotten back right after the end of the war. And um, that story to me always kind of exemplified this idea of like trying to put that, uh, kind of how, how you described the how do you fix this person who you've taught to be a monster? Um, how do you put that back in the box? And even if they didn't see battle, you've still opened that part of them. Right. And I think this is partially explained by my interview with typo uh, from biting the bull. Mm-hmm. where We talked about his experience and just how, even for vets who don't see active duty, the suicide rates are still high, very yeah. high. Yeah. And it seems like Typo was talking about how they just completely deconstruct you as a person and they build you back up in their vision. Like they melt you down and put you in a different mold and inject you in a different mold. And that process, something gets broken sometimes in the middle. Mm-hmm. And for some people, you know, there's there's all types of people that go into the military, but some of them are not 
well to begin with. And it seems like maybe some of them are extra vulnerable to breaking. They, they bend until they break. Whereas, you know, it's not easy for even regular, most people to go into the military and be stationed and, you know, typo was stationed in Okinawa. And even there, you know, he's talked about incredible mental, mental health struggles. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, it's my, uh, I don't want to say too much. I've got family in Okinawa stationed mm -hmm. and it's, it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to be in the military on its own. It's especially not easy to be like self-aware and be in the military, like, like to, to be a self-aware person in that situation. Um, I think that's one of the things they try to do is get you to turn that part of yourself off. Um, that part of yourself that is self-aware and that is like self-critical and thinks about things. I, I, I really think they try hard to turn that part off because it, it clashes so hard with what they want you to be. Part of it might also just be that Okinawa is a horrible place to be stationed. I, I don't know. Maybe the natives. I mean, the natives are so pissed off that they we're there. They hate it. They hate it. And honestly, for good reason. Maybe there's some kind of voodoo juju going on there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's probably more universal than that. I think I think it's I'm probably, sure, yeah. yeah. Anyone anyone who goes through the experience of, of, of being part of that um, brotherhood, if you will, where you've go, you go through these experiences where, like you said, they try to break you down and build you back up in their image. And it's a, uh, it, I think, well, just like you said, I think it can break something inside of somebody where they're just not, not even not the same, actively worse off yeah. oh, than yeah. they were before. Well, one other thing I wanted to touch on, too, was uh, Just War Theory. And um, oh yes, it's another really fun kind of thing to get into that not a lot of yeah. people talk about. Um, you would think that just like the idea of a just war. Now I'm I'm of my opinion, and I depart from Rothbard on this. Is that my opinion is that there is no such thing as just war, and there never will be. I, such I thing agree with that. Just war. Um, but you would think that the idea of a just war would be something that is um more anti-war, right? That anti-war defensive, defensive right? Well, just war theory, like neoconservatives are just war theorists. And yes. I think yeah. realists are just war theorists. So just the idea, and I guess it depends on what your definition of a just war is. Of course, from a Rothbardian point of view, a purely defensive war would be a just war. Uh -huh. um, I don't believe that a just war, because I think just war theory has done more to excuse wars of aggression. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, just like how, you know, sometimes, um, uh, oftentimes what states will do is when they develop a constitution, states will input uh, uh, like justified ways states can aggress into their constitution. And then they say, look, this is the justified yeah. aggression we get to do. Yes. It's yeah. kind of like that. And same with just war theory. It's like, well, a lot of war is bad, but when we, when, when it fits this criteria, then it's good. It's, and it's and like, those oh. criteria will always bend to fit whoever's advancing the argument. That's right. Yeah. There's the, there's a, uh, to your point about just wars though, I think socially, I think, I think society at large, or at least people generally agree more with Rothbard. The idea that, that right. if you're, if you're in a defensive posture, if you've been attacked, 
you are free to attack. Um, for example, the even even at the scale of states, which is where the logic kind of starts to break down. But the um, the idea that, and I've I've made this point on the show before, the idea that the the draft was not used in World War II because we didn't have enough guys. The draft was used in World War II. If you actually read the executive order, the draft was utilized because we had too many volunteers. And uh, some people have uh, found sources indicating that there was fear the economy would fucking collapse because there were too many people signing up uh, to join after Pearl Harbor. And this this uh, also follows the, 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 the executive order, and I forget the number for it, but it's in the sources of, of one of our episodes. The executive order is specifically um, outlaws and bans volunteering. The the so I say that all that to say I think society at large kind of agrees that if if you're if it's defensive, I'm gonna show up. You know what I mean? Um, at least that's what those numbers would imply. And and I I, t- I tend to agree with you that warfare at qua warfare is is not ever just. Um, yeah. But, but I think society at large feeling defensive will, will come out for it. And I think that's also part of the problem we have now is that we haven't had a quote unquote just war in a very, very, very long time. And people, I think, have realized that. <laughs> well, that's, that's part of what I was saying about this uh, elastic definition of what a defensive war is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think your point about society, you know, viewing a defensive war as being just is astute. But what is your definition of a defensive war? Exactly. We got to fight them over there so we don't fight them here. Is it right. Or, right. Or, well, you know, the Japanese, uh, quote unquote, the Japanese attacked us. So when we dropped the atom bombs, uh, we were just being defensive. We right. Were just responding right. to their attack. That's you know, what when, when those two, when the little uh, baby in, uh, you know, Nagasaki gets evaporated, we were just defending ourselves. Right. So that's, that's why the, I say the logic know. at the scale of nation states, the logic of, of defense starts to fall apart. But, right. um, or, or Dean, even, even to your point, and you'll appreciate this is defense of yourself and defense of others. Right. right? Exactly. So, like, when we sail our warships through the South China Sea, <laughs> we're really defending the rules-based order of the world. <laughs> the liberal world order. The liberal rules-based world order. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it falls yeah. apart yeah. at that scale. And, it, and uh, not to interrupt, I'm sorry, Ace, but... but the, no, I, no, uh, you're fine. Go ahead. The, um, there is a... The, the, it... it in that broad kind of sense, the United States, like if you try to, ju- like for example, the United States was hungry for war after 9-11. Um, there were very few voices, and those voices were loud and, and they were acknowledged, but there were very few voices that thought Iraq was a bad idea at the time. Very few voices in the media. I think The Daily Show might have been one of the only places you could get that. Um, the idea that the Iraq war was a bad idea that and some celebrities, but outside of that in the immediate aftermath, right. Of, of nine 11, it was very much, I, I, I would posit that the cultural mood again, from what I've read of the cultural mood after Pearl Harbor was very similar where it's like, no, 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 we have to go kill the guys that did this. And I think that is a reasonable response 
um, to say, you know, this is they're actively committing hostilities against um, the nation in which I live and, and, and thus implying they're going to commit hostilities against me. And so we need to go get those guys before they do anything. But I think the key component is those guys. So whoever, right. right. So whoever says, whoever says uh, it was them, it's like, okay, let's go get them. And it turns out, no, that he was pointing at a rock. Uh, Oops. It's it's very much like every single time someone talks about this, and this is the same when it, it even if it's like no matter what war, I, I find people have this same like mental block, uh, whether it be World War Two with like um, America versus Japan or um, after nine eleven Afghanistan and Iraq, they're like, well, they attacked us. Well, wait a minute, who is they? Yes. Well, when you say that sentence, that is you. That is um, that is Atlas lifting the world. That is how much that they is <laughs> yes. carrying your argument. Right I'll now. even accept uh, in that context. I'll even accept us because the implication is they wouldn't have cared if you were one of the guys on that ship, right? So I'll even take us. But, but they yeah, but when need they to be they, very specific. <laughs> yeah. Like, the the amount of people who will just look at conflicts, like, a, uh, like international conflicts between two countries as just, like, two nodes on a map. And there are no other players in the field there. And what other player and like citizens are just merely, you know, cells of the, of the country. And they're, you know, that when I hear people say that it is hard for me to wrap my mind around how they can actually believe that. Like it's, it's generally uh, genuinely like difficult for me to get inside their head and imagine how they can like look at pictures of a child being killed by a drone strike and think, well, you know, they were just a part of the, you know, foreign country we were at war with. So, yeah. you know, it, what happens? So part of part of my thing about believing there are no just wars. Mm-hmm. So say that, you know, tomorrow those fucking fibs decide to march over the border from <laughs> their shithole state, Illinois, come <laughs> north into Wisconsin. <laughs> let them have Madison and Milwaukee, but once they get north of Highway 29, gloves <laughs> are off, right? And I'm, I'm sitting with my granddaddy's old M1 Grand, mm-hmm. and there's explosions going on, and we're fighting them. Even that, to me, would be an unjust war. Completely unprovoked, those fibs come up north, right? Completely unprovoked. To me, that still is not... I am not a just actor in that situation, because... Any war, you know, say that say that I'm shooting at at a fib and there's a stray bullet that goes and hits a child. Yes. Right? Any of those fights, of course, you could say that the fibs instigated it, right? Sure. But in in a in reality, it would be my finger pulling the trigger and yes. a bullet hitting a child. Right. right. And and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm I'm not pure to the point where you know, of course, ideally there would be no war ever, right? And but that is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I I'm not peered to the point where I'm going to sit here and condemn someone for like, just take take your average Ukrainian who's fighting on the ground against Russia right now. Right. You know, I I have my feelings about U.S. involvement in prolonging the war and things I've talked about ad nauseum on my show. Um, but that person who honestly believes that they're defending their neighbors and their soil from aggression. Uh, from actual aggression, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Am I going to sit here and moralize to them and lecture them about how immoral that they are? No, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. Right. Well, it's the same but kind my, of logic. My that, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying my thing is like, I, I think like, well, each person has the right to defend themselves in a, in a conflict when they've been initiated upon. Uh, but you were, I also believe you were also responsible for any harm you caused to a third party in defense of when you're acting in defense. Right. So I, that, that to me is how I kind of like square that. Like and it's unavoidable in a war. Yes, in a war. So in, if, if you're in a situation where it's unavoidable, where you feel like, oh, I'm going to like, harm a bunch of innocent people yeah i would i would be morally opposed to that as well so yeah i I do agree with you that i think like in real realistically what war is realistically i don't think there is a just war realistically yeah it's one of those things um to to your point patrick it's one of those things it's kind of like um well i mean like you said the ukrainian who who honestly believes and 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 to to i mean in in a lot of cases probably honestly is Defending their own home from an aggressive mm-hmm. act by a by a foreign party or a or a third party, um, uh, like that's you you it's it's difficult to moralize to that person in the same way that if you have two people and 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 I liken it to this because I'm familiar with it, not because I'm being a nerd. Um, if you have two people aiming a gun at each other, each thinking that they're acting in self defense. As far as at least we make allowances for, they are. They're both acting in self-defense. Even if they're both wrong, it's the, it's the subjective belief that you're in danger and you have to fight for yourself that we respect. And, and I think that is sort of the same thing that you're, that you're describing. This idea that like, I can't sit here and condemn somebody who thinks, who, and honestly believes that they're defending their home and their family from an aggressor it's just you 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 really can't (laughs) but at the same time i think it is fair to say that especially on the scale of nation states and 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 these large groups of actors like this there's no the self-defense logic breaks down as soon as the government is directing teams of people to go kill each other you know what i mean like even if you wanted to apply self-defense logic to your your uh fifth scenario (laughs) um even if you wanted to apply self-defense logic to that, to some extent, you maybe could. You know, they're coming to take my house. So, okay, so maybe you have to fight those guys. But but when it's a government directing a bunch of people to go kill one another, there, there's no defensive action there. You know what I mean? Right. And, and where I have a little less sympathy is when, you know, farm boys around here, you know, whoever joins up in the military and then get shipped out to Iraq or Afghanistan. And, Mm -hmm. you know, of course, subjectively, they probably believe that they're protecting us back home and doing all those things. Now I'm not going to moralize or condemn them because a, it's not productive and B, you know, just adding more animosity to an already fucked up situation is not the person that I am or the person I want to be. I want to be not, yeah, not particularly helpful. (laughs) But at the same time, I can sit here and say that that's wrong. Right. You know, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very nuanced thing. Yeah. Uh, And it is one of those, especially, especially in, for example, just like that in the wake of nine 11, it's like the, all the people joining up to go get the guys that did that. I'm, I don't know. I don't think, that that is necessarily a bad thing for a person to feel. Um, 
but but the it's it's, it's very honorable sentiment right you know? right mm-hmm. um but it allows for that sentiment to be hijacked and and used yeah. by bad actors to go attack a rock <laughs> like it it, right. it allows for that and that's the that to me is the core of the problem um at least with regard to work like, currently yeah for people who don't know, fib means fucking Illinois bastard. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, um, I, I kid, I kid. I really, I'm not one of those people that has a real rivalry between states. Like, oh no, it's fun to it's fun to cosplay yeah. those kinds of things though. It's very fun. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Yeah. Like for for people who get really really into like I don't know sports or mm-hmm. I, I'm not a sports ball. Boo, you like sports kind of person, but uh-huh. I, like I I do know people who are from Minnesotans who really hate <laughs> Iowa for no reason, and they like bring it up all the time, and it's just so fucking annoying. Like, I don't feel <laughs> right. like those people, you know? Yeah, right, right. yeah. I, it, it's actually interesting because I I feel like um so going back to what you guys were saying a second ago about like how you know this. It, it's a uh, very understandable emotion to feel, right? To, after you feel attacked, you want to go stop these people. Um, but I, I, I think, as you were saying just a second ago, too, uh, this can get hijacked in very nefarious ways. And if you don't have a clear idea of who the enemy is, and even more so than that, if you have no care for the people you harm along the way in trying to pursue justice to get these people, uh, then you yourself are going to become an, uh, uh, um, an aggressor just like what was done unto you. Right. right. Like, uh, uh, like if, and like if it, one of my favorite things Ron Paul ever did, one of my favorite arguments that he would, uh, uh, pull out every single time in regards to foreign policy was let's imagine if it was China or Russia or something doing what we're doing to Iraq or Afghanistan. If let's say a, a group of people in America attacked China or Russia and then Russia or, or, or China, uh, came over here and started rolling tanks down your street or uh, put a, like uh, putting up check roadblocks and checkpoints or bombing places in your city because you think uh, there might be, you know, uh, uh, some terrorist inside and, you know, in a, at a wedding or like in some establishment somewhere. And they were just doing this and they were just justifying it. Uh, you would feel very upset. Yeah. Yeah. Just so. So when people deny blowback theory, they're the the when people are mad about nine eleven, they are they are using what blowback theory is saying to justify going over there to attack them. So it, it's just this super like backwards argument. It's even it's even like well, imagine that a bunch of like Brits and South Africans and Australians got together to form a terrorist group. Yeah, and they bombed china and then yeah. hid out in caves in colorado yeah and china used that excuse to occupy our country for 20 years yeah right yeah it does after they had left after the yes. brits had left yeah colorado. yeah and they're yeah. still hanging around they're still fighting a war against an invisible enemy with no real right. and, and killing a lot of civilians along the way it, it's right. a, it, it's it's a It'd be like that movie was at Red Dawn. That's how everyone envisions themselves if China like invades right. or whatever, you know? It, it's like, yeah, that that is the animosity. Now, just apply that how uh, Iraqis feel or Afghanis feel in their own respective countries to what the U.S. is doing. Uh, that's how they feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've I've so, heard uh, I've heard Scott Horton make that point about 
yeah. with regard to Afghanistan in particular about like what would you do <laughs> if Russia started rolling th- rolling tanks through Texas? Uh, Texans right. would not be happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Patrick, I, I did want to ask you. Um, I, I don't want to get into like I'm not going to name names or get into specifics here. Uh, but have you found it very weird or very? And this isn't a big thing, but it's just something I've seen on Twitter about certain people on Twitter like uh, almost poo-pooing the anti-war movement recently because, oh, well, you know, this is just a waste of time or like, oh, you know, yeah, all this stuff, that type of, of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, I, I just released an episode of my podcast today kind of addressing <laughs> that and talking about it. Mm, um, okay. I, I really, um, this isn't, so I I hate that. I mean, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a, I don't take it as a personal affront, but I, and this isn't really an anti-war point, but it's just like, I I don't get just more broadly in the Liberty movement, all these people who think that they know what's best for everyone else. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that if, you know, if, if uh, human action taught us anything, or if this whole study (laughs) of economics taught us anything, we should know that, each individual person is the best person to judge what the best use of their own time is. Yes. We are best positioned. Now that doesn't mean that everyone, you know, applies their time the best way all the time. Right. But for the idea that, you know, fucking popular Liberty, Andrew <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That he yeah. knows what the best use of my time is. He's never met me. Right. He doesn't know what I do all day long. You know, right. To moralize a, to me that calling my congressperson and spending two minutes on a phone right. is a waste of time and that makes me a Lalbert piece of shit or something. Right. Or right. to take or to, to to find allies. This is what bugged me about it. All the people who were shitting on Scott in particular for mm-hmm. finding allies in people with whom uh, I think Scott would disagree with on almost everything, but agreeing that wars of American aggression paid for by our tax dollars is a bad thing, and and that being somehow a, an expression of weakness to find allies in that pursuit, and that pursuit alone, um, I, I I I am I'm disgusted by it. And- if I'm being and honest. these guys, the same guys who are critiquing for that, are all guys who are fine uh, uh, allying with like monarchists and you know finding, finding their types, own bedfellows. I'm just going to be honest. Finding yeah, their own bedfellows. They're fine with doing yes. that on the right, but that when they when it's someone on the left, uh, you know, then they freak out about you know. Yeah. Oh, you're then it's a problem with all these people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Is, is there anything? I'm not saying that this is the case, but is is there anything more Machiavellian? Than making strategic alliances with people, right? <laughs> your own ends. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're trying to have it both ways. On one hand, they're critiquing pe- for people for being like uh, pure libertarians uh, and not being pragmatic. But then when people ally with people who don't agree with us, they're like, "Oh my god, you're allying with all these uh, you know unsavory characters." It's like, which which one is it? Which yeah, one is I, it? I've I've really found that to me being. Studying foreign policy really is a litmus test that reveals in some ways, I mean, I said this about libertarianism when I first became a libertarian. No, but it's really like this with the law, right? And maybe, Dean, you can you know, corroborate me on this, is that when you know the law and you know how the law works, it's like 
you can read the code to the matrix. And for me, it seems like studying foreign policy gives me a lexicon that I can use to decipher po- politics in general. Because, you can't see it, but I'm nodding emphatically. Yes. <laughs> it, it all boils down to foreign policy. You can, yep. you can mm-hmm. identify people who are snakes in the grass if they hold a bad foreign policy take. Yep. Then yes. you know things. Yes. And it's one of those things, yes. too. And, and you, you, you say it works similarly with the line. It does. I think it's one of those things you're describing this with foreign policy. And I think I or you're describing this with regard to foreign policy. I, I suspect it's similar in this realm. When you start learning enough about the law, you kind of have a choice. You can, you can choose to take it on its own terms and venerate it as such. Or you can choose to take it on its own terms, understanding that, um, this could be a problem in a lot of cases. Like there's, there are people, and I'm sure you had professors, because I certainly have, who venerate the law as the law. You know what I mean? Like just because it's the law, it is venerable. And I feel like there might be a similar thing that happens when you go into foreign policy. I didn't, I'm not a deep uh, foreign policy scholar or anything, but I had several classes in undergrad where we didn't read out of a textbook. We read books by people. Um, and, and many of those were based, were foreign policy related books. And you kind of have a choice. You can go with the sort of premise of drift, or you can go with, uh, Bill Crystal. And, and that's kind of, where what you have to it's hard to be neutral when you're faced with the reality of a foreign policy yeah. um in much the same way as it's hard to be neutral when you're faced with reality of the law and how the law is applied right and and just what you were saying patrick it's like for me it's like look I, every libertarian has their own like you know pet issues and i'm not faulting people for that right everyone had just like you know everyone ha- is very diverse they have their own set of priorities uh and that's fine i'm not i'm not saying that's bad but I, as a person, I do not care how good your tax policy is if you think we should uh, bomb people in yes. other countries. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't care. Like, you're just not an ally to me uh, at that point. Uh, and for me, that that really is one of, like, the big three, like, litmus tests that I look for. And can I ally with this person? Uh, it, it's it's so fundamental to me because I feel it's just like, to me, it overshadows other things. And I'm again, like, I'm not saying it's wrong to not, I'm not saying it's wrong to care about tax policy or something like that. So I don't want to come across like that. But when we're talking about mass murder, I feel like that should have priority. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and Rothbard thought the same thing. I mean, he said that I'm, he said in a personal letter, I'm becoming very much convinced that the key to this whole libertarian business is war and peace. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It, it really is. I, I mean, I, I was talking about this in the episode I released, I think yesterday, and this will be a week ago, I think for people who are listening to this, but um, I was just talking about how the libertarian movement, at least our corner of it, this mm-hmm. Mises caucus, Tom Woods orbit, and the breakaway, the schism that happened during COVID, everything is in a weird place, oh, just yeah. a weird place. 
I've never yeah. seen people so at each other's throats. No, I agree. Never seen more sectarian division and infighting than I see right now. It and I fell think- the fuck apart, dude. It really fell apart. So the 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 split that occurred, and it was a it was bigger. It was a massive split. You had the lefty kind of libertarians who spun off after the Mises Caucus took over the party, but you also had. Um, you you already had right leaning libertarians spinning off into post libertarianism even prior to that, right. um, yeah. and then liber- like libertarians, I guess little L libertarians are just kind of left here being like, uh, what what do we? Well, and, more, <laughs> and moreover, it seems like it seems like the the Mises Caucus revolution is dead on arrival. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just gonna say it. It's, yeah, I that. I'm not I, saying that's yeah. a fair characterization. But I'm saying that's what it feels like. I told my I girlfriend agree, that the night it happened, I told my girlfriend, I was like, yeah, people are celebrating and stuff, but nothing much is going to change. And uh, I, think I've, I think I'm right. I think messaging to the left has kind of stopped, but that was never going to work anyway. <laughs> so it's one of those things that I'm like, yeah, it's, nothing much has changed. And, and I'm not saying that to belittle or condemn the people right. who are part of it because I have a great amount of respect for them and I cheer for them. Sure, yeah. Um, but I think in, in, like I said in my episode, I think this might just be what was always going to happen and what they knew was going to happen, right? Is that mm-hmm. we've all been working for years toward the singular goal of taking over the party, and we all knew that there was going to be a hangover afterwards. And what happens, you know, of course, they're, the whole team is entering new positions, figuring out how things work, making mistakes, adapting and doing those things. and that's all valid. Um, there are fair criticisms to be made, but I'm not saying that it's because of, you know, their fault even really. It's just no, like, it, it, I don't think it's anything... going to happen. You know? Yeah. I don't think it has anything to do with them individually. I think it has more to do with the nature of the machine. Um, it's, right. it's a, it's a political organization and there's only so much that can be done within those confines. Yeah. I, yeah. So in regards to like the the fracturing you're seeing with people, um, like certain libertarian groups, and I look, I'm not saying I, I don't want to uh, be mischaracterized as uh, like saying culture doesn't matter because uh, you get that criticism a lot as libertarian that well, you know, libertarians just don't care about the culture. But I, I am suspicious of libertarians who are so focused on culture to the point where they will ignore or sometimes even hand wave away state injustices because it might be better for their cultural interests uh, in some regards. So when, when certain libertarians either on the left or the right, I'm not uh, I'm picking one out here are like so obsessed with culture. It may, it, I, I can sometimes get the impression that when, it, if it comes down to it, if the chips are down, you would rather live in your culture with a state than than have liberty and not have your culture. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, I'm not trying to say that. I don't even uh, think that's a stretch. I don't think yeah. that is definitely what they would do. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I, I think that's why you're seeing the split. I think a lot of people are more married to their, like their cultural predispositions than they are to liberty, which, you know, uh, I disagree with, but whatever. And I'm not trying it's to say your culture isn't important. Yeah. I'm not trying to say your culture isn't important, but uh if, if you're willing to sacrifice liberty for that, then I, I can't consider you a libertarian at that point. Right. Um, I, I think yeah. collectively what, what I noticed is that in the movement, there is a general weariness 
for ideas and more proclivity toward action. People yes. are like, okay, we've read human action. You know, we, we've read uh, Man, Economy, and State. We listened to the Tom Woods show for years. We're done with that. Now mm-hmm. I want results. And COVID just happened, by the way. Right. And Dude, the COVID thing was the breaking everything. point. It yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 say, I, said my, I said in my show, too. Hold on. Sorry. To, no, 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 no. Go for I, it. I said in my show, too, that I've noticed that people, the people who went in more the post-libertarian direction were the people who were most affected by the government's response to COVID or felt sure. it the most personally felt, felt it, it the most. most yeah. And I think for some people it really shattered their identity. Yeah, yep. Yep. yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. I've, and I've told Ace before. Um, I don't think I've ever said it on the show, but just in our, in conversation, I've told Ace before that the person who impressed me the most uh, with the response to COVID policy and stuff was you that yeah. rather than going in that direction, rather than uh, freaking out, Losing your sense of place in the world and or or your or principles even, you took local action to try and make a difference. That mm-hmm. to me is far more venerable. That to me is far more effective and far more meaningful. In in a broader sense, I'm getting emotional. Um <laughs> far more meaningful than deciding that principles which you espouse for years no longer matter, which if, if you decide they don't, fine, but but taking action in that way as opposed to just deciding, like, no, I'm going to be a totally different guy with totally different ideas. Um, I, 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 like I said, I said it before, but I, you, you're the one that impressed me the most. Out of, out of all of the higher-profile libertarians who I follow, your response impressed me the most. Well, I yeah. really appreciate that, man. It was it was a hard time for me too. I mean, I I got I mean total honesty, I got fired twice. And it wasn't necessarily because of COVID. It was just that, you know, on the road to success, you fall. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm not perfect and frankly, I I focused way more on this liberty stuff than I did on the things that mattered like putting food on the table. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, right. and there's a whole lot more to, you know, about that. Um, but yeah, it, it just, you know, I was having these, I was having a lot of feelings that a lot of post libertarians were having a few months before COVID even hit. And I have the receipts. I, there were episodes where I was talking about, you know, the LP isn't for serious people. And like, I, you know, being so wrapped up in this world is like libertarians have problems and they just want to blame the state for all their problems when mm-hmm. it's really they should look in the mirror. And you those know, are not having... those are not bad critiques either. Like those are those yeah, are serious sure. critiques. I mean, I've, I've I mean Ace and I have both before made fun of the LP for being a clown show because yeah. it is. But but that's not that doesn't speak to the principles of liberty that speaks to party politics more than anything else right. as far as I'm concerned. But I I uh, but the I, second one, the second yeah. one, though, I think was, you know, people externalize all of their internal problems yes. and blame it on the state. Yes. hundred yes, percent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's a very easy psychological ploy to have an enemy 
And then you're like, oh, I can just blame everything on that enemy, right? And I then can you just, can like, be the hero these... and moralize right. to everyone else about how you, you know, the NAP is the most moral thing. And exactly, yeah, kind of like how the post-libertarians do to libertarians. Right. I was, yes, exactly. I was very yeah. glad. I was very glad for the hot minute there before the post-libertarians happened, when everyone kind of stopped talking about the NAP. I was really yeah. super happy. There was a period of time where it seemed like we all just kind of quit talking about it because, and and uh, again, this point has to be made over and over and over because it's not a complete moral system. We we can argue right. about things ancillary to it, but it itself isn't really the biggest issue on the planet. <laughs> and um, now it's it's had to come back because of the right. attacks on it from post-libertarianism right. and things like right. that. I was going to say, always bumps what me brought... Out. What brought the NAP back into like a discussion, at least for me personally, is that the the post libertarians were constantly talking about violating it and wanting to violate it, <laughs> right. and that's why it had to come back into discussion. So yeah, kind of created their own like they're like complaining how libertarians always talk. It's like sometimes uh, liber some people, specifically post libertarians, will criticize all libertarians talk about is the non aggression principle. They always talk about the non aggression principle, blah 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 blah. They never talk about culture. Now, here my ideas about culture, how we need to crack some people's skulls to institute my cultural right. preferences. It's like okay, well now I have we have to talk about the non aggression principle. <laughs> no, it has about, to come yeah, back. Like, yeah, now now great. You have you brought it back. Congratulations. Or or uh, these these other critiques about how. Um, you know, it's just having a podcast is wasting your time. Um, having a podcast will say this on a podcast. Yeah, yeah, They'll yeah. say this on talking on a podcast. Yeah, and, and it's <laughs> it's things like that, but also like venerating faith and family while having none. Or venerating venerating success while having none. Yes, uh -huh. yes, exactly. Uh, uh. It's also funny because, like, uh, and you know, going circling back for a moment to like all these uh, uh, post libertarians who were like uh, shitting on you or the anti war movement or Scott, uh, all these people, like, if you, okay. Even if you think, I don't think that's going to work out, even if you're from the position where it's like, I, they're doing things, I don't think it's going to work out. If you, if someone is going towards a noble cause and you are constantly calling them a bad person, I view you as an enemy. Like, like if someone is trying yeah. to abolish slavery, you're, right? you're, you're and the maybe, asshole. And maybe, and look, when you're trying to abolish slavery, no one at that point knows what the correct strategy will be to do it. No one from that vantage point, like we can all look back at history and see what worked and what didn't. But from the vantage point of the present, uh, you don't know what thing is going to cause the next thing, right? You just don't have that foreknowledge. So uh, if you're sitting there talking about how how slavery is never going to end, you're just you know you're you're some loser who's trying to free slaves or uh, you know get rid of slavery. I view that person as an enemy. That person is not an ally whatsoever, even yeah. if they might, you know, claim to have some goals. That they're playing. Are they're playing uh, the they, the crab bucket game. All they're doing is playing the crab yeah. bucket game. Right. Right. The, so in, in, for for me, I was glad to let them do their own thing. You know, I mean, yes, we're, we're taught, of course. You know, in there there was an unspoken thing in circles that are close to me that we don't talk about post-libertarians because it just gives oxygen and they thrive off of it. And that's the only relevance they have yeah. is 
relevance. I'm certainly guilty of, of that, that too. They're <laughs> a niche of a niche, right? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And, and the only oxygen they have is what our small movement gives to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that really pissed me off is when they went after people who are close to me in this mm-hmm. movement. Yes. My brothers, you know, and right. I'm a loyal person. Yeah. And that really pissed me off. I was, I was yeah. content, yeah. frankly, I was content to laugh at them and talk about them a little bit on the show, but we really never, we never got deep into it on the show. Um, we talked about it a little bit, but it was more in the context of like philosophy and what are the driving philosophies behind these different ideas and things like that. But what really got me is when they went after Scott, mm-hmm. uh, uh, going after Scott to me is look, well, it's uh, cause they weren't relevant for months and months and yeah. then now they are relevant again. Yeah. 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 But it, 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 it pissed me off. It really pissed me off when they went after Scott in particular. I don't know the guys at the Libertarian Institute really. Um, outside of you, who, whom I know, but uh, I, I don't have a personal connection to any of those guys, but I know that what Scott is doing is important, and he's the best in the fucking world at it. And, and, to, call him the, and to call him the worst libertarian is just insane. <laughs> like, you should, I can't say what you should do on the show, but you should do that. <laughs> you should do something. That's what got idea, to me. The idea that we're swindling people out of their money. I mean, let me no, tell you. Scott is not saying, give me money and I'll end wars. <laughs> you know? No. Well, well, even even that, I guess the argument being is that, you know, you might subjectively believe that you're fighting the good fight, but what you do is pointless and a waste of time. Like, or or that we're just, we're out of tricking young, bright-eyed kids from their money to fund our... That was... Oh yeah. my god! Yeah, that, yeah. Don't that, do that. Instead, instead, donate to the uh, GOP Mises Caucus. Yeah, don't send right. your money there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. just just for me personally, the amount of the amount of effort and time and time away yeah. from my family and time that would better be spent. I mean, let me assure you. I make more money in my business than I do doing this. Oh, right. I do this because I'm very passionate about it and I think it's important. And, or the idea that, you know, I I mean, any of us, there's, I mean, being anti-war doesn't pay buku bucks. Let's just, right. Going on over to, to the PNAC or going on to, you know, the, the foreign policy initiative or, or, you know, the Jamestown foundation or something. Um, infinitely more appealing monetarily, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, oh yeah. It, it's it's it, it it what what really that's what really got to me about it was the idea that this is a um honestly it, it's upside down world. Everything that is not a LARP they treat as a LARP, and everything that is a LARP is what they do. Right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. There's nothing there's yeah. nothing that is a LARP about the Libertarian Institute. There's nothing that is a LARP about antiwar.com. There's nothing that is a LARP about all these things. Yeah. The, the defend the guard shit matters and it's real. The uh, the fact that Bernie uh caved does not speak to the efficacy of antiwar.com or the Libertarian Institute. It speaks to Bernie being a fucking scumbag. And that's it. Right. The the, <laughs> the it's it, it doesn't the the idea that what the Libertarian Institute, antiwar.com, what, what is being done through these outlets is at all um, a waste of time or resources. Uh, it, it is, uh, it, that is an affront to 
frankly, any any sort of praxis as far as trying to create liberty goes. Like, the, right. The the that's the praxis. That's that's the, and, that's what's happening. Yeah, and also the fact that so going back to what you were saying, Patrick, about like how there was this like I because I often piece like I, I feel like in some ways I feel a little bit responsible because I was the one who kind of like engaged with the post libertarians like very early on, and I feel like. I may have had a little bit in like in the very niche corner of Twitter, I might have had a little bit of something to do with them being more prominent than they otherwise would have been. Maybe a little tiny bit. Um, <laughs> well, you weren't the only one. I mean, Dave's I know Dave, I know yeah. on shows to talk. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I remember, and I'm like, mm, I might've made a mistake by doing this, but then again, now I think that, you know what, actually bringing them up to prominence and then having them shoot themselves in the foot by just letting them speak actually was probably a good thing in the long run. <laughs> uh, it hasn't gone I, I well. Think, I yeah. think, um, you know, and I, I, I'm not calling Dave out or anything because I think <laughs> through the conversation, he realized that it was a waste of time, I think. Right. And, and I, let me, let me just say too, that I have, a great amount of respect for Buck Johnson. And mm-hmm. I have, I have respect as well for Pete because mm-hmm. I, I think that Pete, you know, he, he doesn't denounce. I don't believe he does the anti-war mission, you know, yeah, the, the anti-war.com and stuff like that. And, and I, I do think that it's been gone about better from, from those two figures. Yes. So, I, I, I will say he he has stayed away from that. Pete in particular has stayed away from that. And uh, I think that is a very good thing. I lost respect for Pete for other reasons. <laughs> sure. If that makes sure. sense. But I, I do think it's a, I do think it is a, 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 a good thing that he has not gone so far as to denounce uh, the Institute or, or antiwar.com or, or the work that's being done there, especially by Scott. And, um, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I think you're right. He, he, they're not having done that is good. That is a good thing. It's also like going back to what I was saying just a little bit ago though, but it's, it's like, if you, even if you think the anti-war movement isn't going to accomplish anything, which also the claim that they're not like, if you claim that the anti-war movement has not accomplished anything, I feel like you're falling for the old economic problem of like, failing to see the unseen because how many people who then learned about the anti-war movement did not like join the military or something like that. Even if it's one person, that's a win. That's a better thing. That's a better outcome than what would have been had they not existed. Right. Even that very small number. Um, But even that, even saying that, even if you think that someone is doing something that you don't think is actually going to accomplish it, like if someone's uh, pers- uh, pursuing a noble end or a noble goal, but you don't feel like their means are going to accomplish it, why are you shitting on the goal? Like, why are you shitting on the overall uh, like framework, or why are you shitting on them in particular rather than at least if not if you don't feel like anything's going to change, at least shit on the bad people, you know? Yeah, or stay yeah. silent. Why are you? You have a choice of what to do, but you choose to attack the people at least trying to do something that, even if you feel like it's not going to accomplish anything, why are you attacking the people trying to make it better, even if even if you think they won't? Like that, I just don't get that mentality at all. For well, me, I, I think, well, sorry, go for it. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Well, I was just, I was just going to say that we all should have the humility, basically, to admit that we might not be right. 
Right. We might, but we might not be right about the ways to achieve the ends we would like to see in the most yes. effective way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. We're not why, central planners. Like Ace was saying, why shit on people who are at least pulling the rope in the same direction? It right. it seems to me that the I mean, look, if if if, if you want to argue about tactics, and I think I think that's a fine argument to have. If you if you if you disagree with the way someone's going about something, even if you would like to see the same thing occur, you can disagree on tactics. But the answer to that is not to say um, that the person who is working toward the same goal I am, but doing it in a way it, it, that I think is not going to work, is the bad guy. And and I, I have a secondary complaint that honestly it just doesn't and I'm bitching now. It doesn't it doesn't really I hate this critique, but I think especially where it's the internet and where it's things like antiwar.com and stuff. Do build it yourself. Do your own. No one's stopping you from giving a hundred bucks to Squarespace and starting up a fucking anti war site that does it the way you want. If it's if it's that if it's that big a deal to you that the people who are working towards something that you claim would be a good thing are doing it in a way that you don't think works, do it do it yourself. Yeah, I think the fundamental issue is is that they don't have the same end. They, I agree. I I agree as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's what it comes down to. And it's not just that it isn't important to them, which would be fine. That's your prerogative. Whatever's important to you is important to you. That's that's your own value judgment. I think they actively don't want the what the anti-war uh, sort of coalition wants. Yeah, and that's the that's the danger. That's the problem. Well, what you haven't considered, Dean, is that abortions kill more people than war does. <laughs> I'm sure I haven't considered that, and I'm sure there's a very easy solution to that problem just around the corner. <laughs> I mean, like, you know it, you could also criticize them because like uh the idea that you know um in the same way they feel like it's unrealistic that you're going to end war it's un- also unrealistic that you're going to end abortion nationwide even with the repeal of roe like the states are individually going to support abortion rights and they haven't been able to stop it so are if we start shitting on them because oh you're just wasting your time uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure they'd think, oh, wow, you're right. You know, no, they, they'd get pissed off too that we right. were like uh, shitting on their noble cause. So like, but yet they'll do it to the anti-war movement. Yes. I think they, they hate us more than the left because in our, you know, in, in their mind, we're probably like Uncle Tom's. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. I, I, that is a great way to put it. They, they see, and I've seen it uh, put this way and I can't remember by whom, but, um, the head, the hand, the I've I've seen libertarians described as the handmaids of progressivism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, uh, no, I, I don't, I don't think that this is confined just to post libertarianism, really, either. Because in, in my mind, there's there are, you know, strains of republic. You know, people. It, it's it's amongst people who think that republicanism is the political way forward it's not yes, all of that right that but it's also you know prominent among desantis supporters yes I mean, right it's this idea that the right wing is inherently inherently more friendly to libertarians and to a to a great extent they'll even right. say um 
And I, it's all, that's always been something I disagree with. Like you can point out cases in which that is true, but there are just as many cases where that is not true. Yeah. Um, I find and, so, and uh, it's, the, uh, the evils of far right, you know, far rightism is, uh-huh. are just as bad. Yes. Yeah. 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 This is the thing I was, I was having a conversation with a guy one time and he was saying, well, uh, if you're, if you're largely a right libertarian, you should then, uh, vote for, uh, right leaning candidates or conservative candidates because they're going to be closer to you. And I said, except they're not because one of the most important issues to me personally is defendants rights and the right fucking sucks on that. I have yet yeah. to find a conservative who's any good on defendants rights and I cannot in good conscience cast a vote for a conservative on that basis. Um, and, and so, and, and the response is some hand wavy bullshit, but it's like, this is all personal value judgments and i don't see the right uh the political right um as a greater ally to me than the left i don't see either of them as allies they both want me on a fucking boxcar i'm not interested in helping either you know what i mean like the way i see it anyway yeah and like i said i'm I'm a conservative guy i don't know how many times i have to say this i'm a very conservative guy (laughs) but the conservatives scare the living shit out of me (laughs) yes (laughs) it's like i mm. i it's not i don't i'm not upset at people pointing out how bad the left is like i agree with that yeah but when they when i see libertarians sometimes hand waving away the dangers of the right wing i get a little queasy in my stomach a little bit because it's like you guys are about to get backstabbed every single every single time libertarians have uh allied with the right wholesale right like rothbard uh, in the 60s or Rothbard in the seventies or whatever, uh, he, he got stabbed in the back by national review. Like, yeah. like the conservatives have done this over and over again. Every time libertarians have tried to ally with and, them. And I, I really feel like, you know, we're, we're selling out for head pats from people that, don't, yes, you know, like this whole Blake masters shtick, right? I mean, oh, God. Blake <laughs> yeah. masters is not, I mean, of course he's not a libertarian, but the way that he was packaged uh-huh. and sold to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, just really, really made me, and I was wondering what the fuck is going on before then. Yeah. But it really was like something is rotten in the state of Denmark here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yes. And again, not, not to, um, again, there were people I respect who packaged Blake Masters and sold yeah. them to us, um, mm-hmm. including Ron Paul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Dave Smith did that as well. And I I guess I'll respectfully voice my opposition. I'm trying to be diplomatic about this, you know. Of course, of course. Of course, out. yeah. Um But I think it's because, fair to call a mistake a mistake too. I, I think uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was a mistake and, and it was the even the most token it, I mean, it felt like a sales pitch. All the interviews with Blake Masters felt like a yeah. sales pitch. And there was no real guarantees or assurances the other way. There was no even assurance that he had actually read Mises. Right. Like, wouldn't it be? He, mm-hmm. he told the same canned story about his parents being Ron Paul supporters and him reading Mises when he was in college. And, of course, I don't believe that silly shit anymore. <laughs> but I can't even give you one Mises quote or say, right. hey, this is my favorite thing about, you know, it Mises is economic, you know, the economic calculation problem or something like uh-huh. that. Yep. Yeah. Right. The most yeah. basic shit. Yeah. I yeah. think it's, I think it's, it's fair to call a mistake a mistake in that way. It's, it's not, it's not at all undiplomatic to say, uh, from my view, this is why that didn't work. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's not a, it's not a fuck you, you, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you're yeah. a terrible person and we shouldn't do things. You no, know, it's not like that. It's just, a, well, I mean, but, for the but, same reason, but, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, the, but the rottenness in, in the state of Denmark comment was just mm-hmm. more of me being like, what the fuck is going on? Here? Yeah. It, it seems to me that like, and again, this isn't unique to the right. If you, if you, I, I feel it's important to distinguish between allying with a specific person, finding specific individuals to ally with that are like are anti-war or uh, good on mm-hmm. drug policy. Or something like that, sure. right? I don't yeah. have a problem with that. But when people, when, when libertarians have this tendency to want to ally with a specific group of people, uh, like the right or the left, because they feel like in general they're better or worse, that's when I get really worried. And, uh, you know, there's this whole thing, like after every time there's an election, uh, everyone blames the libertarians. They're they're simultaneously the weakest political party in America and responsible for causing the other guy to win simultaneously. Right. Uh, and uh, people always blame the libertarians. Now, mathematically, it never really works out that way. Like, the, the, the libertarians rarely ever cost an election for one candidate or the other. But I, I was, uh, Dean and I were talking about this a few episodes ago. It's like, what is more of a Machiavellian like power play than threatening to throw an election for one party unless okay. they capitulate on certain policy? Yeah. Right. I feel like that should be, in my opinion, if there's going to be a libertarian party, that's what you should do. You should force the one of the guys to say, "Okay, we will capitulate. We will give you this if you do not run. And and let's talk about you you mentioned, you know, not aligning with movements. Then we should evaluate the person. Blake Masters is the COO of Thiel Capital, which is (laughs) venture capital fund. I mean, right. his border hawkishness in terms of like, yeah, free, you know, open borders aside, the whole argument aside, mm-hmm. the this um, the surveillance measures that he yes. represents and is directly involved with in terms of, you know, all the surveillance state and the military industrial complex uh, firm relationships and all of those dynamics. I will not support Blake Masters. No, anymore. right. You it, can't make. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a it it it's I I think that's an excellent point that you made Ace about the aligning with individuals for individual causes which which uh again people shit all over Scott for doing but he's right to do it I think that yeah. if you can find someone who's with you on this thing I'm not saying you have to ride the train with me to the end of the world I'm saying right. we're working toward <laughs> this thing and 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 in doing so, you can find whoever you need to work with toward that thing, and then right. argue and bicker for the rest of your fucking lives. Who cares? But you accomplished that goal. <clears throat> yeah. One big thing I learned from Scott, um, just through pieces that were workshopped internally and and things like that, was there's a big difference between saying, "Hey, dude, you're wrong about this," and saying, "Fuck you, you're compromised." You know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, you're controlled opposition. Right. Everyone's fucking controlled opposition now. Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Or or burning a bridge is is I guess what putting someone on blast. You know. Yep. I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm the Justin Raimondo fellow at the institute. There was mm-hmm. no better attack dog to have on your side than Justin fucking Raimondo. Right. Mm-hmm. But attack dogs sometimes bite the wrong person. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or they savage the wrong person. Right. Um. And. And knowing when to say you're wrong as opposed to 
saying fuck you and burning uh-huh. a bridge is a very important thing. And, yes. and I, you can you can burn a bridge um you know with with uh Robert Kagan, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you can burn right. that bridge. But someone yeah. like Doug Bondow or Pat Buchanan, who largely is very good on foreign policy, Pat Buchanan once said that instead of bombing Kosovo, we should be bombing China. <laughs> does does Justin Raimondo come out and say fuck Pat Buchanan? You know? No, he says Pat Buchanan is wrong, but he's a hero. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the that's the short sightedness, I think, of the you know, there's a whole crowd of people out there talking about high time preference and low time preference thinking. And I can't think of a greater example of high time preference behavior than what a lot of Praxian libertarians have decided to who call themselves Praxian libertarians have decided to yeah have decided to engage in a lot of what they've decided to engage in i see as some of the most high time preference behavior and the the policies they tend to support some of the highest time preference behavior i think i've seen an example of in a very long time and low time preference would be building like ideological infrastructure or like uh, infrastructure like antiwar.com and and, like building things slowly over time to build an anti-war movement. Uh, High time preference on the other hand would be trying to take over the state immediately to impose your, your, (laughs) you know, preferences. Yeah. Uh, That would be high time preference. And and they've obviously, in my view, chosen high time preference while preaching low time preference. I I think if they really, if they really believe what they say, they'd be trying to start a venture capital firm like field capital (laughs) and buy politicians. Right. And yeah. Honestly, I yeah, mean, if sure. they believe what they're saying, they would start a business, whatever business it is, amass a lot of funds mm-hmm. and buy politicians and, yeah. you know. <laughs> none, of, none of them have that kind of money. No. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they'll, they'll, they'll talk like they do, but, but none of them, none of them have that kind of money. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah, and that's. Yeah, it just bugs me. It, it it bugged me. It bugged me when it came to Scott, because there's a lot of things that that I, that at least me personally watching it, I was just like, eh, I'm I'm fine to just laugh at these guys. Yeah. But when they started coming for Scott and the Institute, yeah. I was like, oh, hold the fuck on. You're you're actively on the wrong side of this. Well, <laughs> and, and moreover, if they really believed what they say, they should love me. I mean, they should love me. I live in the middle of bumfuck Wisconsin. I got guns out the wazoo. I'm a professional. I'm an attorney. I have two children, another on the way, and a wife that I'm happily married to and have them for six years. I'm Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's all these things, dude. Some of the some of the worst things I've heard from some of these people is that, well, anarchist libertarians, whatever they are, um, are are all failures. They don't have anything. They're not successful people. They're just bitter about life and they blame it all on the government. And I'm sitting here thinking about okay, I'm a, I'm graduating from law school. I'm about to take the bar. I I intend to have a successful career with my girlfriend who uh in in all likelihood and as we've planned out for the next like 5 fucking years of our lives together, uh will be my law partner as well as my regular romantic partner, right? Like like my, my romantic partner and my law partner. And we intend to build this life together, and we have a plan to do so. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, 
have any of you ever been in such a position? Like, ever. And and even you, Patrick, are a greater example of that. Already attorney, already successful with a family and a and a practice and all these other things. So it, it, oh, and I started my own business too. Yeah, right, right, oh, <laughs> right. So it it blows me away that it's um oh I was about to get very specific. It blows me away that it is people who do not meet their criteria of a fulfilling life, their own criteria of a fulfilling life, who want to. Um, who want to claim that it is it is us we and I'm I'm not even necessarily saying that all three of us are 100 percent the same ideologically we're not but the, as a in a general sense us who are just bitter failures at life and, and mad about everything and <laughs> right like it doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> it's it's deeply deeply hypocritical <laughs> yeah. I think it's projection. I mean, what do you hate the most is those things about yourself that you can't change. So you see those things in everyone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I do it's, the same thing. I do the same thing to, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. Sure. But I, I just, I yeah, just sure. talk myself up a whole bunch, but there's a lot of problems, you know, there's struggles, right? right. And I mentioned I got fired twice in two years, right? Yeah. Um, Dude, uh, during COVID, this failure during covid uh i damn near got kicked out of school <laughs> like i couldn't i couldn't focus on law school over goddamn zoom i just couldn't do it i have to get yeah. up and get dressed and go to school like I, if yeah. i don't do that i'm 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 ugh, i'm a nothing you know what i mean yeah. um i would so, play video games the whole time I yeah mean, <laughs> I, I mean i would have smoked weed and played video games the whole time dude i sat there playing destiny during fucking lectures knowing i was fucking up actively knowing i was yeah. fucking up and it was yeah. like i i damn near got kicked out um and as soon as we were back on campus my gpa jumped right back up and i was back in good standing <laughs> like it was just that little difference that was the difference between me being uh successful and not being successful and it's it's uh, and i know exactly the character flaw i'm not motivated enough i'm not motivated enough mm-hmm. individually but i also know that about myself like <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's what you do to, you know, the daily grind of identifying that and what you do to counteract it. You know? Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. It's a, it's it's one of those things that. But what I didn't do was say like, uh, what I didn't do was, uh, have my mind broken by the 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 the, the situation. And I think right. that's what happened to a lot of people. I think a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds broke during that time. And it, it, it saddens me. And, that, and again, that's why I say it, the, your response to it is, is the most impressive response I saw. Because yeah. you said, no, I'm going to go down here to this local, local, uh, I, I think you did, what did you do, school boards and uh, city council? Did you both? I spoke at some school board meetings and then I, I went to um, a supper club and I started an event and we didn't really advertise the event, but like 400 people showed up at the supper club and I just gave a speech, you know, wrapped Rothbardian libertarianism in founding father's language. Yep. Which mm-hmm. is not a huge difference, but uh, no, you know, it's right. not, it's not a massive, but it's effective and it's local and it's caring about your neighbors. And it's all of these things that these guys pretend to be. 
Yeah. But it was but it was but it was real and earnest and I think that is the most impressive thing that I saw as a result of the covid policies and stuff was was you in particular and specifically. And I know many people did this, I just didn't see it. You you in particular and specifically going to having engaging your neighbors and saying we're we can't have this and that and the other thing. That is that's yeah. fucking praxis, man. That's real. Well, I appreciate yeah. that, dude. And the, well, so there were some other things I tried to do too. Was like I I went to some county board meetings and I met with people who were introducing these resolutions to reaffirm the county board members' oaths to the Constitution, uh, which was rejected. Of course, and uh, it, it was because they said, "Well, we always we take the they took it as a personal insult instead of a signal that their constituents were worried about things, you know? Right, right. Um, which is just stupid political ego. But I uh, I tried to draft nullification resolutions to, to get circulated through the county board. So there were, and I gave two or three other speeches aside from the supper club one in different counties, and they weren't quite as well attended. But I think at that point, the high watermark had been reached. right. Um, but I mean, I stopped doing it because things simmered a little bit, but I also had to focus on, you know, starting my business. So, right. Just, mm-hmm. Well, uh, like I said, yeah. that, that's the most, that, like I, and, I'm, and I've said it before and Ace can attest, uh, even off mic, uh, that that yeah. was the most impressive thing that I saw, um, as a result of all that. And I was, I was especially impressed given the context of the Liberty movement at the time where all of these guys' heads were broken and and they spun off in this weird ideological direction that is that is almost impossible to identify as it's not entirely coherent. Um, yeah. So I was I, that, that I just wanted to say that to you personally, and I could have done it off mic, but I elected not to. I guess um, that 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 is that that impressed me a lot, and um, it reaffirmed my respect for you individually. Uh, that, that was the, that was what you chose to do with your time and, and with the, the drive to make a practical change made you actually go talk to your neighbors and have a, have a conversation and try and affect that change around you in your world that you actually are able to exercise some amount of power over because it's your corner of the world. And that's important. I think. Well, you know, imagine this, Dean. I got a great number of referrals from <laughs> those events. So, I mean, that it translated directly into personal success. <laughs> of too. course. It's really, you know. It's almost um, like getting out and talking to your neighbors just does good in a general sense. <laughs> and and on, on the flip side of it, too, you know, if these if these people that we're talking about, if they were just less condescending assholes about it. Right. <laughs> said, you know what? I disagree with what you're doing, but I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. Um, there would be no problem, man. Right. Yeah. Instead, it's like, instead of calling my coworkers Russian agents. Right. Jesus right. Christ. Whole, <laughs> yeah. Dude, that is one of the things too, is like, they always talk about, you know, uh, money because they, they feel like, oh, libertarians are useless, but I don't understand. I don't know if they realize how unappealing they are just from the way they message. Right. Uh, it's yeah. like I wouldn't want to live in your covenant community. No way in hell. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know, uh, it's just like they, I, yeah, the way they message things and that they are just like condescending dicks. Um, yeah, 
a, a lot of the time. You're, how do you expect like, to build a covenant community or a, or a quote unquote high trust society when everything that you say makes everyone else go, I don't want to be anywhere near you. <laughs> like, right. That's the opposite of the, and again, it's the opposite of what you did when you went out and spoke to your neighbors and said, here's why we shouldn't allow this and that like that. That's a, it's, it's a, it's a totally different worldview. I think ultimately, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think it just belies a, a a totally different worldview between um that 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 group of people and and, and the people in it individually and um uh people who don't think that way. I I'm <laughs> yeah. and, and I'll say that this um this right-wing reactionaryism and I mentioned this before, it's not confined to to the post-libertarians. Not either. at all. Uh-huh, I agree. And, and I think they're they're thinking even though they're a small number. Uh, I think their influence has, I mean, I guess to their credit, it has reverberated across the movement. Even I've changed the way that I think about things based on their critiques. Yes. Which, and that's why I think there, there's valuable things, but um, this, this kind of right wing reactionary take, I guess I, I want to be clear is not confined to them. It's a broader problem that I see yes. in the movement uh, just in general. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree entirely. 100%, 100% it's hundred percent agree. And it's and it's frankly it's dangerous. Because if your when your rhetoric goes that far, um whether you intend to make good on it or not, and I, I I'll be honest, I don't think that a lot of these people, whether they be post libertarians or no, a lot of like the the right wing reactionary stuff, I don't think they intend to make good on anything. I, I think it's a LARP. But um whether you intend to make good on it or no uh, that kind of rhetoric is only going to embolden who you imagine to be your cultural enemies. And, and it, it, it doesn't, uh, deescalate the situation. It doesn't get you anywhere back to any kind of center that can hold. Um, and there's the problem of who takes the reins after you have given yourselves the power to execute these things, you know? Right. Right. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I always, that I, that I said it was high time preference is like, yeah, Yeah. look, Hitler took over Germany, had all the power in the world over that country, started a goddamn war, a a world war. And uh, then he shot himself in a bunker and everything he built collapsed. Nothing political can stay. Nothing political lasts very long. And the more power you give that machine, the worse it is when it turns around and decides to eat you. And and that's I think the sort of the core of the high time preference thinking that's going on in the reactionary right, and 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 to your point, I, I don't just mean libertarians. I mean this in, along the conservative lines as well that people are in, um, or post libertarians, whatever. Uh, it's not a good idea. It's just not a good idea if you have a long mm-hmm. enough time horizon. Um, but I'm afraid they don't. And and I, and I think COVID did that. I yeah. think COVID shortened the time horizon for people to the point that they can't, they, they can barely see past their own nose. They're so scared of tomorrow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think that like, when I say that post-libertarians have been influential above their weight, I, I, I'm not saying that they've grown the number of post-libertarians right. that exist. I think that they've pulled people in the Dave Smith, Tom Woods orbit further to the reactionary side. Yes. But those people yes. they've polled are not liber- post-libertarians or practicing. Right. Liberal. No, no, no. 
No, I don't think so either. Uh, and and to, uh, if to be entirely fair, I mean, you you talked about sort of the way you think in in the wake of some of their critiques, and I I tend to agree with you. I think I think there are things that they saw that um, are important. Yeah. Um. Absolutely. Uh. But th- the <laughs> the solutions proffered, I think, are uh, either insane on a long enough time horizon or a LARP. Right. I, and I and think it just goes off that way to me. I think it's certainly true. Um, uh, we don't have to spend too much more time on the post-libertarians. because I feel like we've talked about them more than they actually. I do think like, it's not that they're entirely wrong in some of their criticisms, although some of their criticisms are just downright dishonest. Uh, like, for example, uh, the, the, uh, many of them would have this idea that, oh, well, the, the non-aggression principle just means pacifism. I don't know how many times I've heard this from them uh, in multiple occurrences. And no matter how many times, like, you tell them it's not true, uh, they'll just act like you, you're not, you are opposed to, like, uh, revolting against the state because of the nap or something like that. It's just like, you know, there were certain criticisms like that, that like really got under my skin uh, a while back. And it's like, that's just not the case. You're, you're, e- you either do not know, or you're being intentionally dishonest and misrepresenting what we believe. And I don't know what's more Machiavellian than taking over a political party. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, like in a current right. name. Yeah. 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 Oh, sorry. Continue, Ace. There, there was more. No, no, that was pretty much. I was pretty much done. I, I, but that is a good point because it's like they're still trying to take over the Republican Party, and yeah, you know, they haven't really done that. You so. know what? This was so funny. I went to Freedom Fest, and I was feeling kind of saucy, and I went to the Republican Liberty Caucus, and there were people there, and I was like, "Do you guys know who the Republic, uh, what the Mises, the GOP Mises Caucus is?" And I said, do you guys know who Andrew Pierce is? And they looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> They're like, who the fuck are you? And who the fuck are the people you're asking me about? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a sad thing to see because I really mm-hmm. did see a lot of strength in the movement before COVID. Um, I really did see a lot of it. I, I saw a lot of, uh, um, I I, uh, I saw a certain building of cultural cachet uh, before COVID, and um, I think some of the people who were responsible for building some of that cachet uh, were broken by COVID and and um, abandoned the project entirely, and and that to me is uh, that's it, it saddens and disheartens me. To have kind of seen that happen, but I mean, there are some, uh, there, there are other organizations I think doing more who have, who have remained steadfast, Libertarian Institute being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Antiwar.com being one of them, the, that, that whole sort of, uh, really anyone, anyone around Scott, I think has, has not moved, has been an absolute rock. And, uh, yeah. And that is a guy who who that's a guy who can pick them. That that is a guy who absolutely picks stead, stalwart and steadfast people. Because mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. if he didn't, he wouldn't have picked you, frankly. Um, <laughs> um, so it's a it's a uh, I'm I'm always I'm very impressed by that project. And uh, damn the naysayers! I think I think the Libertarian Institute does yeah. good work, and I think Ant- I think Antiwar.com does good work. 
And um, oh yeah, indispensable. Yes, and I think Vital Descent is good work <laughs> as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, um, thank you. I I really do appreciate it, and it's it's helpful to hear because I really have been struggling lately mm-hmm. with the project. I mean, especially thinking about um, getting really busy with work and thinking about six years in to doing this activism and where am I going to be in six more years? And if that's a place that I want to be, mm-hmm. and if I can even handle being successful at both of these things, uh, my legal career and, you know, being a libertarian activist. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, you know, thinking about my children and the time and effort and energy I put into this and what I want it to look like. And then having this bullshit in the movement and this fracturing yeah. in the movement and feeling like I'm not even excited or energized about what this has become. And turned yeah. into. Yeah. I see it like this. Part. I see it like this. Um, because I've, I've thought the same thing about, I mean, internet libertarianism, if you will. I, I thought I've thought the same thing about it and like what 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 is there that's a value here anymore? And and this is kinda how I see it is that and, and doing the show with Ace has helped with this immensely. And seeing the people who respond to this show um has helped immensely. I think this is very much akin to sort of the crypto washouts that you see. When when yes, yes. when Bitcoin dips hard and the non-believers uh, flee the ship, and yeah. the people who are left behind are the the people who the really remnant. care. Yeah, right. I think this is. I think this event. I think COVID served as a washout for the liberty movement, much like that does. Where the people who right. are left behind, the people who are still there, still doing the work, I think are the ones that were were the ones yeah. of value to begin with and and yeah. that's and that's what yes. you build on and uh, that's such a oh. good point because I did want to add on to that because like as a as um I think I mentioned earlier you know there's some people who when the chips are down uh they will abandon liberty they will like you know because they care more about you know their particular cultural preferences than they do necessarily about liberty you know whether you think that's good or bad I I'm not going to like speak on that at the moment but like this does show like who actually is going to be committed to liberty when the chips are actually down and i think that's a very important like watermark or guideline to like um see in in terms of longevity too i always i look up to my brothers keith and uh kyle keith knight kyle and salone yep i think about the reasons why what drives them to do these things and I think for them, you know, Kyle specifically is someone who has never been taken with inner drama, online yeah. drama. Yeah. I've known Kyle since two, two, longer than I, I think as long as I've known you, Dean, because we did a crossover on like episode 10. Many, many, many years ago. <laughs> now. I've yeah. known Kyle Antalone that long. And Kyle has done a every day of the week, sh- I think every day of the week, no, three or four times a week show. And he's done those links, his news roundup. He's done that for six years and Jesus. without scale. And, and the thing, and I know that Kyle is not doing this 
for, you know, he's doing it for the right reasons. He's doing it because he believes in the mission and that yeah. he loves this stuff and it, it gives him something because if it didn't, he wouldn't still be doing it. For me, I've done a lot of thinking about why I do this over the years. And there is um, my, my mom, um, who is also a legal professional and is a shout out. <laughs> shout out mom. She's, she's, you know, she read this book called The Boy Crisis. And I know Jordan Peterson has talked about this and always kind of wondering like this phenomenon of failure to launch men, right? Oh, yeah. And, and how masculinity in our culture is, is in peril and jeopardy. And there are a lot of things, and, and not that I'm a failure or anything like that, but I mean, I've certainly had struggles that men of my generation do. Yes. And she was saying, right, read this book because there are things that men of the, of your generation do where the role of being a man is not venerated of being, you know, the kick-ass, uh, the rock, the person who goes out and is successful in the world. Yep. And so instead men retreat into video games or other aimless pursuits. And I think where where they can be in their fantasy land, they can be the hero. Yes. And in this controlled environment, they can be the hero. And I think honestly, um, for me, that's what this is. And this that's what this has always been. And I'm being very I mean, this is very personal to share. Sure. Um, sure. I and I think that I started this when I was a second year law student. And I think that I was afraid at the, at the prospect of the le- my legal career and wondering if I made the right choice and having this love hate relationship with it and being scared. Uh-huh. And to me going into doing Liberty weekly and doing law stuff was a controlled environment where I could be the hero that everyone came to for answers. And I would have this body of work and be respected among my peers in a fantasy land. And yeah. and now I'm f- almost 30 years old. Um, I do have a successful career and I do have a family. And is the fantasy land still worth it? Is it necessary still? And what is it getting me personally? Yeah, I can totally understand that. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things, though, that too. It, it's It's one of those things where what is it? What is it providing? Um, what is, what is, what does it do? Because here's the thing. Because <clears throat> you can start out doing, I'll use, actually, I'll use video games as an example. I, I, very rarely do I play video games alone anymore. Um, very rarely. Uh, I, I, for, for most of my life have, enjoyed playing video games alone i don't anymore it feels like a time sink i like playing games as a social experience i i don't i fire up valheim and play with friends i fire up destiny and play with friends if i'm playing a video game alone it's because i'm laying down in bed and i'm about to go to sleep you know what i mean like i'm i got an hour maybe to give to that um so, so the, the question then becomes, I guess, uh, I say that to say this. The question then becomes, regardless of whatever motivation there was at the beginning, uh, what is the motivation now? 
Has that changed? Is the motivation different? Um, and do you is your relationship with it different? Right, that, and that I think can the change. The answer is yes, and I think that when I get burned out, are the periods of time where I feel like either A or B is true. B, I'm not getting the feedback that I want to justify living in the fantasy world and getting the reward of kudos, right? Or B, the real world is more rewarding. Sure. Sure. And it's a combination of both, right? And, and the reason why I'm, I guess I'm, exp- um, I'm being a little exposed here is because I would tend to think that people listening to this probably relate a whole lot to what oh, I'm talking about. I certainly sure. fucking do. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure um, so. But, but on the other on the other hand, I cannot tell you the honor that it is to see my work on antiwar.com. Oh yeah. And to work with Scott and all the other guys. I mean, really gives me something. Um and I wish I could do it full time. But mm-hmm. the money obviously being a lawyer pays better. Yeah. yeah. It's better for my family. Sure. Right. That's what comes first. But just like that, that's what comes first. It's one of those things where, just like that. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Right. That's that's certainly the question. But to me, just like that, it's look. My relationship with, I mean, my relationship with doing a show changed from when I first started it. I I first started doing Dino Files for similar reasons that that you started doing uh, Liberty Weekly, except that I was an undergrad and also I. just thought it would be fun, right? But it's uh, the core motivation is the same. But being where I am now in life, uh, it, I see this as a different. It's a different thing. Um, I think that's kind of why Dino Files died, and I think that's why the end times continue was able to happen. Is because uh, and Dino Files, by the way, I don't think it's dead forever. I just, I just, I want to do something else with it, and mm-hmm. I don't have time to at the moment. <laughs> but it will never be what it was, and it shouldn't be, because I think doing this show in particular, I have, I have a very different relationship with this than I than I did with Dino Files, and and it would be very easy for me to say, man, I don't have time for TEDC anymore. But there's something about it that I'm like, no, it's 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 valuable in a way. I don't I don't mm-hmm. know, even if to no one else. And I know that that there are people who listen to and enjoy the show, and I and I and I appreciate that very much. But even if to no one else, I'm right. getting something out of it that I wasn't getting when I first started doing this this shit. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's what changes. I think the relationship with the product and the relationship with the project changes. And I think it's one of the things, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, this is this is one of the things that that the sort of post-libertarian schism showed me. Um is that I I I want to do I want to do this uh and and as much as I as much as I want to do anything else. But not not for its own sake. I want to prove wrong to some extent the the constant critique of the of 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 the anarchists that we hear from people like that like the 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 last thing that i want to be is an example of you know failure yada 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 all the other stuff that people that right. people accuse you of being 
Mm-hmm. And I think in a way, being in this kind of space has actually motivated me more to have a better life <laughs> because it's like, it, it triggered a little bit of introspection because it's like, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's incorrect to say that, you know, anarchists or libertarians are all failures and yada, yada, yada. But I know, I, I know that I very easily could be. Yeah. You know what it, I mean? Like, I, it's also a, a case of like, and like, I look, I, I don't, I can't give advice because I, I'm not in other people's shoes. I don't live other people's lives, but I think sometimes it can be very unhealthy if, uh, even if you're going towards a, like a noble cause, if you are like monocausally focused on that thing, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're just solely focused on that thing and not taking care of yourself, that in the long run is actually going to be counterproductive to actually achieving the goal in the first place. So if you do want to achieve a goal, you should make sure that you yourself are in good uh, in a good position and a good standing to continue doing that. So I think that there is some necessity there to make sure like y- your own house is in order uh, while you're trying to uh, while you're trying to you know pursue some goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important. And it's the, it's the, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly right. You, you, you can't, you can't, uh, try to solve the world's problems if you're, uh, if, if you haven't, right. if you're not paying close enough attention to what's going on in your, in your backyard, which again, <laughs> again, uh, kind of speaks to, I think, I think this, what I'm trying to get at Patrick is that I think you've got the mindset for it. I think I think you're the kind of guy who's going to know when you take a break. I think you're the kind of guy who's going to know when you're burnt out on it or when it's or 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 see that coming and slow down or do whatever you got to do. I think you're that kind of guy because when it came down to it and something needed to be done, you looked in your backyard and you acted in your backyard. And and I think that I think that speaks to where your focus is. I think that speaks to where your mind goes. And I, I, I think that, um, I think you, I think you're fine. I think you're gonna be fine. <laughs> like I really, yeah. I understand the internal concerns. I really do. But I just from the outside looking in, I, 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 I think you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it certainly, it certainly helps to be able to talk um, I mean, especially because there's no one in the physical world in my immediate vicinity who gets this. Right. You know I mean? Yep. Yeah. Who's part of this world. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is just um, I had this awesome therapist who really helped me during these uh, the COVID times and, yep. and losing my job, um, getting fired. I mean, honestly. And he said – one thing we really worked on a lot were these transitions and he would talk about, you know, in your life, it's just being, being an intense, you know, in an intense field like you're in, it's all about these transitions and training yourself and knowing yourself and being like, okay, well, um, really simple things. Like I know that if I stay up too late on Friday night, I'm going to be fucked for a week. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to go on vacation for three days and I'm going to check out at the door and I'm going to go from this, this point, I'm, my hand is in the air right. and I'm going to go down to this point here where, which is my relaxed time. 
And then when Sunday night rolls around, you're going to have to raise that bar or at least make the advanced preparations to get you back to that place that's up top. Yep. And I mean, for me personally, a lot of it was um, struggling with escapism. Yep. Where and where you know the the world is really intense, and I have a mm-hmm. jury trial coming up in two weeks, and there are problems that I'm going to confront in the next two weeks that I need to confront. But right now, let's you know go off into this fantasy world and stay up late and watch television or play video games or do liberty stuff, frankly, um, to get away from that. And you know, at some point. I mean, you never get away from it, really. Right. It's procrastinating. I think the recognition right. of that tendency, though, is is uh, is of value in itself, and um, part of it is because I, I, dude, I'm fucking telling you, man. <laughs> I, if there's two people who I feel more kinship with who I've met through this space than 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 just about anyone as far as personality goes, it's you and Ace. Because the, the what you're describing is is exactly how I feel a lot of the time, uh, especially with regard to pra- procrastination and stuff like that. But I think I think part of it is is recognizing that capacity and that tendency. And, and, uh, engineering around that in a way where it's like, well, I don't do that now. I don't do that right now. I do this other thing right now. And this, this other thing is, 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 is what I'm doing at this moment. And I'm not going to break that. I'm not going to open up steam. I'm not going to do, I'm not going (laughs) to, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a weird mental thing to try and hammer into yourself, but just like, I will have time for that. I need to do this. I physically, the other week, I thought about how much money I'm wasting every year by having Twitter. And (laughs) I physically went and I downloaded an app that locks me out of Twitter on my computer during work hours. Yeah. What is this app? I, uh, yeah, I uh, could be asking useful. for a friend. It's called, it's called cold Turkey. Oh, okay. And then there's another one for my, for your phone that does the same thing for your phone. And it has settings to where you physically cannot get it unless you like destroy your computer or like restart it or, or you can <laughs> set it up. And for me, it was, it was the, the reflexive wherever I confronted a problem in my work day, or had a phone call that was stressful, it was like a soothing thing where yep. I would immediately reflexively go to Twitter yep. and blank my mind out for five minutes. Exactly. You know? I'm just gonna or sit long- here. I'm just gonna sit here and doom scroll for a second and not have to think yeah. about anything else. Just yep. one more quote tweet. Just yeah, one exactly, more. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> for for me, it was I didn't even have to do it so that it physically locked me out. For me, it was just having the block page come up. It was it was squashing that impulse. Yep. Right. Right. Yep. Impulse control. And I think that, you know, for Christ, if if the liberty movement had podcasts that discussed actual strategies for dealing with these problems that all of us have, but none of us talk about. Yeah. I mean, just think about yeah. how much better we could be. Well, it's one of those things where uh, I mean, just like that, the the I'm in bar prep right now. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is it is my next i was i would actually i think i said in the last episode my next three weeks now when you guys are hearing this will be two weeks is is hell i've got a a calendar i talked to the dean at the school uh one of the deans about bar prep and 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 lining things out and i've got a calendar that i've got to keep because i have to work my way through an entire prep book by the second i have to have also done on every uh topic i need to have done three essays i need to have done all this stuff it's all together it's probably close to between eight and twelve hours of work a day yeah and in doing that that, yeah i know (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly and uh and in doing that it's one of those things where i i can't i can't i can't open up steam i cannot let myself open up steam i can't do it i I can't I physically went to the library at the law school every single day and I sat there without, you know, my computer or anything, just working through the, well, I had to watch the videos on the book, right? but practice problems, practice problems, practice problems, practice problems, yep. Yep. even more than studying the outlines or anything like that. Yep. Um, just sitting and, there and I've got, I've got 70 sets to do multiple 70 sets to do before, before the second. Are you doing the, the Barbary or the, I did the Kaplan one. No, I'm using, I'm using the, uh, I don't, I don't, the, they did not make me, this is why I love, love the bar prep people at my school. Yeah. They did not make me buy Barbary. They didn't make me buy anything. Cause she asked me, she said, uh, you guys don't have any money, do you? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, no, I said, I said, my girlfriend is doing, I said, my girlfriend is doing felony trials for clerk work for clerk pay, um, where we don't have any money and, uh, I'm not working right now cause I have to do bar prep. <laughs> and she said, uh, she said, okay. So she handed me a big thick book. It was the, uh, it's the Emmanuel book, I think is what it's called. Okay. Uh, we had tap one available was like as part of our tuition. And it was like not as good as Barbary. But See, we get a discount. Work. We get a discount on Barbary, and it's like, yeah, but it still costs two hundred bucks. I'm not doing it. I don't have. It. I, I I passed the. I I I did the plan. I stuck to the plan, and I passed the bar by like forty five points. Yeah. So you should be. I mean, so did I tell you that I got into a car accident the night of the first day, dude? Why is it that I guess in any three month period of your life, you're likely to have something happen. But one of the guys that does our bar prep was like, there will be a major thing happen to you in the lead up to the bar. You have to put it off and just study. And we were buying a house at the time. (laughs) Oh my God. Our our first house. Jesus. But I I say all that to say exactly to your point. training yourself to have that kind of dedication and to be able to compartmentalize these things in your life so that look, I know, I know Sunday evening I'm doing TETC. So I need to, I need to have everything else lined out to where if I'm, if I'm behind on something, I need to make sure I got time to catch up after. Or if I'm, if I'm, or I need to try and get ahead before I sit down and dedicate two hours to doing two or three hours to doing TETC. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a training thing and it's very difficult. I think for, for guys like, like me and, and probably you to, to, to train ourselves to be like, no, 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 this is when I do this thing. This is the time that I dedicate to it. And I need to make sure that I'm, I'm ready for that. Now add kids to the mix. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It only gets more complicated. But 
I, I think too, it's one of those things where like you'll find the time if it if it uh, if it if it if it matters that much, you find the time, and if it if it you know, it's it is finite. You can't do everything. You can't do this and do woodworking and be a rollerblader. You know what I mean? Like you have to right. you have to pick pick lanes. But um, I think it's I, I I think being able to compartmentalize those things and dedicate a certain amount of time to it. Because mm-hmm. I certainly I certainly am proud of every time every time I go on Monday and I refresh my podcast feeds and I see TETC at the top of that list, it, I'm, I, I feel a certain amount of satisfaction with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and, and so just like that, that's why, that's why Sunday nights I'm doing TETC and I'm, and I'm, and I'm ready and I'm either ahead on stuff or I know how I'm going to catch up before I sit down to do the show. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to open up steam. I'm not going to do, I'm it's, it's showtime. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just well, like I after just, this, I'm doing for, a 70 set. <laughs> well, for, for people listening, I journal. Like journal every morning oh, I yeah. get my tea and I come down to my – I have a ritual for getting in work mode because I, I work from home. And so I come downstairs and I sit with my tea and I journal. Sometimes I meditate for a little bit, but journaling gets me in the work mode. And I ta- I you know I write about what I – you know, things that are I'm thinking about and then what I want to do and how the last day went and, you know, takeaways and things like that. And that helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that ultimately that having, having systems, having systems, this is something that no right. one ever told me. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it's one of those things that I think you end up learning, but, but nobody teaches it is this idea of like having a system for, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, having a system to tackle the, just like that procrastination, terrible deficiency that I have terrible, terrible. And so you have to have a system. You have to have a system that, uh, I'm not going to let myself do this or that thing. Um, because it's only going to get worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then also being able to forgive yourself is a yep. big part of it too. Yep. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're, if you're, if you're like me and, fucking up in some ways immediately makes you fantasize about eating a bullet. Like, like focusing on not doing that. (laughs) It's important. (laughs) Yeah. Interrupting that thought pattern is, is an important thing, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where you, you, you have, again, systems, you have to have systems and it, it's, there are some people who can kind of float through life and they remember appointments and they, they, uh, you know, can sit down and get to work and then they're done with work and they go home and they have, they do whatever they want to do, all that other stuff. Some people are able to live like that. I'm not, I'm not, I need to be more regimented. I need to be more rigid because if I'll never get anything done, if I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. But, but that's and a skill. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say what you were saying about journaling. That's actually a, a very good point because, uh, like, I, I've heard like what the purpose of that is is that gets the procrastinating thoughts onto paper, and it like almost tricks your brain into getting out of that cycle. Like um, by writing things down, like what you want to do, uh, your plan. It's almost like you're put you're starting to put things into motion, even if it's a, in a little bit of motion to start. So that that's a, that that's that a makes a good. lot of sense, actually. Yeah, because I by by sort of excising all of that at the beginning, it's not yes. the temptation to go back to it isn't there. Right, that makes a lot of sense. 
I might try that. I've had other things too where you're so overwhelmed by tasks that you need to do. And one thing that my mom says is like, well, just do one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And the other thing is like um, when I lose, (laughs) I lost, I mean, I've won hearings, but I've lost hard hearings. Yeah. And I lost a hard hearing and I got dinner with my grandma after that. And I just kind of processed it, but I put it on a shelf. Yeah. And then a couple days later when it wasn't bleeding so bad, I took a look at it. Yeah. And I picked takeaways and I took those takeaways and I put them on a list and then I let it go, you know. And um, this is it wasn't even a super duper hard. Like I, I did have a hearing where I was represented dad and dad didn't want daughter to get the COVID vax. And yeah. Oh, that's rough. Which I knew we were going to, but I convinced myself that there was a real chance we might win. Mm. <laughs> and being a lawyer is hard because sometimes you like you start to you start to you start to eat your own bullshit. Yes, yes, you get you so in your, your own. own you get you get so into you're building a case, and you get so into the case that you're building that you start to sniff your own farts, and it's like, yeah. and and you start to like really convince yourself, like, yo, this is gonna, this is a fucking killer, man. I fucking got this, and it's like, uh, well, not so much. <laughs> and, and then there's other, you know, there's a time you go into the the hearing and you just get squashed. Like, I, so I had this. And, and sorry if you guys have to go or like if the show. No, hope, no, 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 no. No, I'm no. Keep is, going. I hope it didn't go too far off the rail. No, no, no. This no this well, we, I'll, before we end, I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back to before. We end. <laughs> I will fun. find a way. <laughs> well, so I had this one hearing where it was. I had set up this cross examination, and in my head, like I'm a big motive to lie guy. Like that's the. <clears throat> There's case law that says that motive to lie is always relevant and, and biases are always relevant. And oh, so yeah. I, I had, it was a restraining order case where this, the woman who was getting a vindictive restraining order on my client, she had applied for a job at my client's business in the past and had been rejected. And to me, this was a golden ticket because I could, explore this on cross-examination and then argue that, you know, she has a motive to be vindictive with this restraining order. And I got into my cross at the beginning of the case and I asked my question and I started, I led with it and the judge shut me down immediately. Relevance. And, and, and he wouldn't let me go back into it. And, you know, I argued that it was relevant because it was motive to lie, but he's like, I don't care. <laughs> he, was kind of, he was at the end of his career. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, first off, the, the circuit court judges don't hear the restraining orders. That's what the court commissioners do. Yeah. But the court commissioner was conflicted out of it. And so he had to deal with this bullshit. And oh, I was happy to be there in the first place. Yeah. 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 It, and it was Another thing that like the the petitioner was special needs or had a child that was special needs. And I didn't know this, but his, I think his son or someone close to him is has special needs. And he was more tended to believe that they were people in need of protection. And so okay. the restraining order was a big deal, even though it was just a verbal altercation. Right, right. And, but But anyways, getting thrown off of my cross-examination so early in it, really threw me off track because I had written my whole cross out and 
it really was a very valuable experience for me because it taught me that I had to, you know, when you walk into a hearing, you have your game plan, but you also have your other plan for when the plan A doesn't work as yeah. well in ways to bring you back on track. Kind of leaving yourself an out. It's it's like when you're trying to put together a, a cross like that or something. One of the things that I, and I haven't done real cross, I've done several practice type situations. And one of the things yeah. that, that I found helpful in that was making sure that nothing was too dependent on the thing before it so that you could have a, a chunk of stuff that was all dependent on whatever came before, but knowing it's possible to get shut down, just having, you can skip that it just go right to yeah. the next little chunk that you have. That's yeah. And part of, part of that too, is it's a skill that is learned. Like the thinking on your feet and reacting is something only experience gets you. Yep. Um, which is, is tough, but there was, it, it came up of course, because it, it's part of being a lawyer. It came up in the trial that I was going to do last Friday, but got adjourned. But it's this whole line of questioning about the alleged victim had a phone conversation with her boyfriend. And in that boy, in that conversation, they say a lot of damaging things for their credibility, sure. setting up motives to set up my client for the theft allegation. And I have a plan A because I thought I could lay the foundation for this phone call by calling her and asking, you know, so, you know, on July 29th, you had a phone conversation with your boyfriend and that conversation was, took place while he was in jail. And you know that when you call someone in jail, those phone calls are recorded and you knew that this phone call was recorded. And so that's how I would lay the foundation. Now, there could be an objection to that because she doesn't have personal knowledge about how the phone calls are stored yep. and she's not taking it in the regular course of business either. So my, it, but although attorneys have gotten phone calls in that way before, but it is objectionable and there's an argument and a ruling that has to be made. So yes. if I lost that, I also subpoenaed the custodian for the jail records. And yeah. So in my case in chief, I was going to call her and get the phone calls in that way. Uh huh. So this was long story short. Sorry. No, you're um, fine. This was a real application of a lesson that I learned from a very difficult loss for me because I thought that I had this restraining order hearing in the bag. Yep. Uh, and I got high on my own supply and then got fucked up in the cross. I was not going to win the case anyways. I don't think I threw it but I wasn't going to win that hearing anyways, just because of the judge. Right. Um, so that learning that, from defeat. Right. It, that kind of idea that no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy is, is the kind of thing that you have to, you have to learn. And that's, that's, it's an interesting thing to see too. You were talking about taking a hard loss and stuff. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, these aren't my stories to tell, so I'm not going to be very specific. I'm going to be very, very general, but I've, I've said before that my girlfriend does felony defense and, um, she's, uh, I've seen her take losses. Um, I've seen her take losses where you talk to the jury afterward and it's like, you shouldn't have lost that. Like that, that, that was just the, that just, that shouldn't have gone that there's no good reason that that went that way. Um, and not even like you made a mistake and lost it. Like there's no good reason for that to have happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Um, and, and I know that's something she's having to learn is how to try and deal with those losses when they come because they come fast and hard in criminal defense. Um, oh yeah. You lose all the time. I'm, I'm, I am, I am shocked and amazed that you're doing crim and family. It's the two worst possible things you could do. (laughs) It's family law is the only area of law where I've ever had to hear of an attorney wearing a bulletproof vest for weeks because someone threatened to kill them. Like this is family laws bad enough or uh, criminal laws bad enough. Family law is the worst. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Dean. Well, it, it pays the bills. That's true. That's absolutely true. Like family law pays more than crim does. Yeah. Because you do a lot of hand holding. Yeah. In family law. Like people hire you to be their lawyer, but also to be their counselor. And I know you know this, but um there's a lot of phone calls where people your client just wants to call and vent about things or they want to work this over in their mind ad nauseum over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And um you know, you try to tell them, now listen, you know I bill phone calls. Yeah, I'm, I'm billing looking, this. <laughs> and I'm just looking after you, and I want to make sure your retainer lasts till the end of the case. Yeah. Uh, which is completely and totally honest. I really do. Um, and a therapist is cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe you should get one. But yep. um, at the same time, there's something to be said about the, the service of really being there for someone. Yep. It's such a, when, when, when you say family and criminal, I'm just like, God, uh, how, <laughs> how do you yeah, think those two areas? Yeah, to be honest, I like criminal law more. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I definitely, I planned starting my practice the most advantageously and there is a acute short of law of lawyers in this area. Yep. Um, and so there's no shortage of work. That's why that's why we're looking to move uh, eventually. Uh, Harris County's lousy with lawyers, and uh, <laughs> so so we're probably going to end up going somewhere where where it's a slightly smaller pond. Um, yeah, small practice is is nice. I'm, or small town practice, rural practice is nice. Mm-hmm. On the one hand too, because the state bar really, really, really knows that there's a big problem with access to justice in rural communities. So they have all kinds of programs and clinics and resources for people who want to start their, like a solo practice, but also want to start a practice, you know, in a rural area. Now, Wisconsin is nice because we have great resources. I mean, in this, the state bar is good. I mean, they're really liberal, like every state bar. Um, but they have a lot of resources and, and great personnel. But the the court system itself is really good. And um, like the, the CCAP website, it's called CCAP, is you can look up cross state. You can look up anyone's record. Uh-huh. And you the like the statute website is really nice so mm-hmm. i know that in some states you have to look up in the county yeah yeah uh it's i just don't i just don't know man i'm i'm looking down the barrel of 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 the job and i'm like yeah uh, <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be a rough man. ride yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what though i mean the best thing I did for my career, I mean, there was a dark time where I was really like, what the fuck did I do with my life? There have been several of those. 
And like, why did I, why am I doing this? You know, I'm trapped in this profession and I'm going to be like a slave chained to the desk and I'm going to miss out on all these things and I don't even enjoy it. Uh, but starting my own practice really for the first time and I'm, by the time this airs, it will be the one year anniversary of when I decided to go on my own. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Thank yeah, congrats. you. It, I, I want to allow myself to feel good about it, even though like there's so much shit coming up in the next couple months work-wise. But for the very first time since I went on this path, I felt like my education was working for me and not the other way around. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, if Dean, if you decide to hang your own shingle, you get to decide which cases you take. You get to decide how big your caseload is. And you get to decide, you know, all those things. You get to decide when you're upset with yourself and when you get a raise with how much you want to work, you know? Yeah. Uh, That's risk. Yeah, it's very risky. But that's one of the things that the plan for my girlfriend and I is is to um she she is looking at possibly inheriting a practice Mm -hmm. in in a way. I was just gonna say that you don't need an office. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Um But that's in, in a way she's 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 kind of looking at that a little bit. Um, it depends on how things go. But right. speaking with her and stuff, it was initially something I really didn't want to do. I initially really didn't want to be law partners with my girlfriend. That sounded like a really terrible idea. And I also wanted to do contract. So there's that. But in speaking with her and stuff, and and I'll tell you one of the things that lights a fire under my ass, dude. Knowing knowing the losses that she's taken and all that stuff and understanding that I will take those same losses has not deterred me from being so fucking angry at the way prosecutors handle these fucking cases. And I, I cannot, I, I, it's, there is hearing this, some of the stories that she has told, um, about that has really kind of lit a fire under my ass to be like, no, I, look, I can I can work on contract cases as I pick them up, but this is something that's got to be fucking handled because I'm not I'm not happy with this at all. For for me, a lot of it is um, I haven't had anyone that's uniquely difficult to work with, um, but for me, a lot of it is the charging decisions that are made. Oh yeah, um, like I had a client who she was in a she was a roommate with someone and they had a falling out and she needed to get her stuff out of the house, but the person wasn't letting her come to get her stuff. So the cops show up and my client gets mouthy and she um, was warned several times to stop screaming and yelling obscenities. Um, So she got arrested for disorderly and in it, she resisted. So the cop put her on the ground and it wasn't violent. I saw the body camera footage. It wasn't, uh, she was just resisting, you know, whatever. It wasn't one of those Uh, hard takedowns you see where it's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. But so sure. She gets the resisting and she gets the DC a few months later, you know, we have a pretrial conference and the DA is, is like reviewing the file and is like, Oh, wait a second. Well, why don't we, why don't we just put it on for another pretrial? Because there's, you know, there's a, another pending charge. I'm like, what the fuck could this be? They're stacking it. So like, well, I, I call my client cause they, you know, they want to dispose of them in one transaction. Yeah. 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 One, one false uh, swoop. So, so, 
um, I'm, I call up my clients and I'm like, have you had police contact and you didn't tell me about it or something? Or what could these charges be from? And she's like, well, I was pulled over whenever and there was a thing. I got a citation. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, let's just wait. So they come out with this complaint and the complaint is a, a misdemeanor. I can't remember which class it was, but it was a misdemeanor intentionally abandon an animal. And <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is And So I'm reading through the complaint and the facts were is that when she was arrested for this disorderly, her cat was at this person's house and she couldn't take the cat with her because she was in jail. So the cops seized the cat and put it in the Humane Society. And they tried to contact her to come pick up her cat, but she didn't answer. And she didn't know where the cat was. And so they charged her with the misdemeanor for abandoning the cat. Oh, my and God. I was like, on what God's green earth is this a good use of everyone's time? Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I was very I was very straightforward with the prosecutor who ostensibly made the charging decision on this. I was like, listen, I know you need your restitution or whatever from the Humane Society. If you know it's two something two hundred and something dollars, you are going to dismiss this charge outright if she pays restitution <laughs> up front. There's no I will take this to trial all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if I lose. It's like, you know, you want to waste time. Let's waste time. Let's you, waste time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he did it. I mean, he dismissed it outright, um, but he got the restitution. I mean, I could just see the, the opening statement. Um, I would blow up a picture of my client with the cat. And say, <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is a story about a woman's love for her animal and the horrible forces that rent them apart. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. I just so, I, I, ah, that is that that's that's aggravating. That's really aggravating. Just stacking like that. And that that happens all the time. Oh right? yeah. I mean, you. I know you know that, but I'm just saying. Oh, no, no, sure. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's one of those things that, uh, the. I mean, when you're on the eve of trial, and this has happened a couple of times, I've heard stories of this. When you're on the eve of trial and you have a, you have a hearing, uh, let's say it's an evidence hearing, just as an example. Let's say you have a, a hearing for a motion in limine and you're trying to keep a piece of evidence out. Maybe it's in the body cam. And the prosecutor's response to your motion is, well, we haven't watched it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that, I hear those kinds of stories and I'm like, I, I, I have to get in this job. I have to get in this job. And I have to, I have, I have to embarrass these people in front of judges. I have to do it. There's I no. Couple, I have a couple stories like that. So, <laughs> right. There was one time I had a client who um, it, he stole money from the cash register of a bar after closing time when the bartender walked out to do an errand, and my guy is on camera from four different angles stealing this money. He <laughs> caught him in 4K. Um, <laughs> he, 
it's clearly <laughs> him clearly him but he he um you know his his extended supervision from michigan he's um he basically he's absconded from his his parole sure and he's due back in prison in michigan and this is during covid and he doesn't want to go so basically he wants to kick the can down the road with these charges as long as possible um so he wants a trial and we're set for trial and the trial date is coming up and I've been hounding the DA's office for my discovery um, because they gave me the discovery. They're supposed the paper discovery, but I'm saying there is surveillance footage that is mentioned in this complaint and I don't have fucking surveillance footage. Yep. 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 And so I was like, does this exist or does it not exist? And you know, I I've sent several emails and so trials approaching and in the final pretrial, um, I don't know if it was after, no, it was a, the Friday before the final pretrial that was on a Monday or a Tuesday. I finally get the surveillance footage after I send, you know, a few emails and questioning whether or not it really existed. And obviously I'm due these under Brady. Right. Um, and so I get the footage and I shit you not. It is like, 55 video files and the total play time of this is like 15 or 16 hours. And so I bring a motion to exclude this because it's being disclosed unreasonably short before trial. Yeah. And we go through and I'm, the judge is just like, well, I see the motion. I mean, you know, honestly, the proper remedy is just an adjournment. And I'm like, what do you mean it's a fucking adjour- I mean, with all due respect to the judge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. With all respect I, to the court, uh, uh, your honor, that's fucking insane. <laughs> I, I just, okay, well, so, I, I mean, my client is sitting in jail, and I haven't made a speedy trial demand yet, mind you. Sure. But my client is sitting in jail right now, and the DA had these ever since the crime was committed, and they didn't disclose these. Yep. And your remedy is just to adjourn kick the can for another two weeks longer <laughs> oh my god and 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 i mean eventually my guy ended up taking the plea deal um but his and it was just a misdemeanor theft case right it's not a serious felony but at the same time if the da is not prosecuting the case it's not my fucking fault and they're not entitled to an adjournment yeah and right. i think that the, in the interest of justice yeah the, the speedy conclusion of cases do not kick this can down the road because the da did not give me my discovery in time yeah that the every time every time body cam comes in i haven't seen any of the body cam itself because i'm not allowed to of course but anytime body cam comes in on on my girlfriend's cases it is a it is uh best described as a folder of garbage video files yeah that is it's, but you need a special player to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have the special Axon. software. Yeah, the special Axon software. All the time. Mm-hmm. Different all the time in these counties. Yep, yep. Because every county has their own contract. So sometimes you need the Axon one, and sometimes you need the, uh, oh, what's the other big contractor? Um, there's Axon, and then there's, uh, shit, I can't remember the other one, because we have Axon in Harris County. Um, but, yeah, the, the, it's, it's a, it's an absolute mess. And then, you have to sit there and try and sift through these things. Many of them are repeats and you have to deal with, well, they, they send me all these video files, but they don't have, 
the car's video file that shows the beginning of the encounter. So, right, like, now I have to send an email. It's, okay, there's an email going out for, I need this file. You didn't give me all the discovery. Whether they, and then you got to fight that for another week and a half. Or they didn't, um, conveniently, the police, you know, in the heat of the moment, did not press the button in time to capture the reason for the stop. Bro, <laughs> they, and this will piss you off, Ace, they mute when they call the intake DAs here. <laughs> huh. When Wait, they've got, what do you mean? When they've got someone in custody, and they're yeah. ready to bring them in, they have to call the intake DA, right. because the intake DA does the charging documents and stuff. So they call the intake DA and tell them the story, and the intake DA basically issue spots what happened and puts together the charging documents. Uh, they mute during that, that conversation. You you even get that, dude? Texas is great on discovery, man. I don't Texas. think that even exists here, that none of it is, you know, the cop doesn't come in to, I think the, the cop has authority to recommend charges. And what we get is a, a document <laughs> where it's like recommendation of charge, a referral, basically. Mm-hmm. So the referral document goes to the DA's office. Yeah, they, 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 they hear they'll, they'll make a call. And it's, it's practically the same thing, except it's done over the phone. Okay. Um. And they mute during that. But the problem you run into is there are facts that are said during that conversation that you're not going to be privy to as the defense attorney. There are, right. there are things that are said during that conversation, things that the intake DA says, uh, yeah. that you're not going to be privy to because they mute the body cam when they call. Yeah. Is it the work product exception? Or would it be? I'm not like, sure. You're not doing this because it's work product. No, I don't think it's work product. I think they just have a i think there's a like a privacy carve out as i understand it it has not actually there has not been an appeal that turned on it yet so the the it's kind of i i posit that it's a violation not only of brady but also of we have a special law in texas where um there was a guy there was a guy who spent 20 years behind bars uh because the uh prosecution kept um uh exculpatory evidence from the defense team because they just weren't going to bring it to court. So we don't have to turn it over because we're not going to use it. Right. It's not part of the case against him. So we're not turning it over in discovery. Well, this guy spent 20 years in prison. And, uh, by the time all this came out and he was let out, the Texas legislature passed a law. It's named after him. And I forget what it's called, but, uh, you have to turn over everything you have as the, as the prosecution. It doesn't matter if it's totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter if it's not, uh, going to come in on your case, you, if it's there, you turn it over. And I think it violates that law as well. Um, well I, I think it's ineffective assistance of counsel if you don't watch all of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, but it does guarantee that or as, as much as it can guarantee that you get everything you, you, there's yeah, no, right. Texas is great for discovery. Really, really yeah. good. Um, and as far as I know, that's not really shared in many other States. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's because they kept a guy behind bars for 20 years because they yeah, didn't turn over exculpatory evidence. I just I really Oof. hate how the court system is a backfilling kind of thing where like yeah. all you can really do is correct things that already went wrong in the past. 
But yep. uh, hey, I, I'm gonna piss my pants here. Oh, we but should like, we should call it anyway. We've been going for like three yeah. and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, no. people don't like killing other people. That's the that's the point of this episode. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Patrick, if you want to give a quick rundown of your like your uh, documentary, why Johnny can't kill, and uh, and then we can plug and uh, get out of here if you want. Yeah. 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 So why can't Johnny kill? It, like, sorry. Actually, why can't Johnny kill? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, it was actually the second one that I've done about this topic. Um, I was mm-hmm. playing around with video editing software. The first one actually is um, Blood Makes the Green Grass Grow. And oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm showing this on, mm-hmm. um, on the camera, but it's not part of the show. But my buddy Keith Knight, <laughs> a long time ago, printed out this comment from James Corbett saying, <laughs> yeah. excellent work, Patrick. And uh, he awesome. framed it for me. So That's very um, nice. I, awesome. I have it sitting on my desk, yeah. and so I think of my friend Keith. Um, so, yeah, basically in that documentary, I go through, and it's it's produced pretty well. It's maybe the best produced thing that I've put out video. It's very good. It's it very, is good. very good. Yeah, well, thank you. And, um, yeah, so it, it goes through a lot of the high points of what we discussed here, but it mm-hmm. has video clips in it from – from these actual things that, that take place in, in military training. Um, and in it, at the end, I got a little artsy and I put in some testimony from the winter soldier sessions where oh, God. Uh, Afghanistan war veterans talk about their war crimes. Absolutely heart rending yeah. stuff. Yeah. And the whole video is, is just horrible. And actually Adam Kokesh testified at this. Yeah, year. He was there. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talked about his time in Fallujah and then at the end I show the collateral murder video and I get more, uh, a little more mm-hmm. artsy because the things that they're saying to each other during that video are just kind of bone chilling. So. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and very emblematic very of the whole, of the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and like, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. Yeah. Go well, ahead. I was just going to say, so like, you like, like, uh, the overall thesis or conclusion uh, of, of the of the documentary is that human beings, while there are tendencies obviously to be violent, we see that all through history. Uh, it's not there's not an, a universal innate tendency that many people assume that humans have that we're just innately warlike and we innately like killing other people. Um, is that would that be a correct uh, summation? Yeah, in in another part of that is that obviously the conditioning has to happen to grease the skids and people need to be put in situations where they are made to kill each other. Yes. And there's not, there's not, it's not emphasized as much, but there is a, there is a a sort of a sub point uh, that I picked up on that I really liked, which is that when you put somebody in that situation, you cause them harm. There's a, there is a, uh, there's, you talk about moral injury in the, in the piece and it is uh, putting people in that situation is inherently inhumane. And it, yes, yeah. yes. And, you know, uh, circling back one more time to the very beginning of the show, I think it's so heroic about the world, the uh, true Christmas truce of World War One, that these men, after being in battle against each other, decided we're going to say no for today and we're going to like act like civilized people and spend Christmas together yeah. and, and bury the dead who they had lost previously. I, I think it, it's one of the most heroic moments in, in like wars of all like war stories. One of the most like for me personally, heroic things. There was the mother of a Vietnam uh, protester 
who, you know, a conscientious objector who was Mm -hmm. imprisoned. And she wrote a piece, an op-ed in the newspaper. And I think the title of it was, what if they held the war and nobody came? Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it it reminds me just of that. It's like, what if everyone just said no? Yep. And don't let the don't let the cynical British historians get you down. There's no way that that was entirely impersonal for those guys. No way. No way right. in hell. You just watch the you watch yeah. the you look at pictures. There were a few pictures from that, and and you look at the guys in those pictures. Guys. Yeah, you look at the guys in those pictures, and there's no They're way happy. this is. Th- th- yeah. They are happy. They are happy to yeah, they're like sharing. They're sharing gifts, uh, little things. It's yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's no, there's no way in hell that that was totally impersonal for those hard bitten regulars. Yeah. No, that that was a that was a moment of humanity, and I don't care what any cynical British guy has to say about it. What's that line from Willy Wonka? So shines a good deed in a weary world, or whatever. It's yep. it's, it's very much like that. It is. And. Uh, there's that scene in All Quiet on the Western Front, a famous mm-hmm. scene that is present in every, you know, the book and every single film adaptation of it, where the main character bayonets the Frenchman at the end, and he uh-huh. immediately regrets it and sits there in, in this shell hole that's filled with water, watching him die and trying to save his life, and immediately looking after he dies. Uh, going through his wallet and looking at the pictures of his wife and yes, uh, really sad stuff. But this message I think is so important that people really need to hear right now, because as much as we might want to deny it or not think about it, we are right now on the precipice of world war three. Yep. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. I sure hope not, but all the pieces are in place. The stage is certainly being set. The stage is set. World, world wars have been fought over much less. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. And it, I, I think I think this is important stuff, uh, not only from that angle, but also the uh, understanding, as, as, as Ace pointed out early on in the, in the conversation, um, Hobbes was wrong. Hobbes was wrong. I, I, I can't I can't say that enough. Hobbes was wrong. Mankind is not this violent creature that we've been led to believe um, that that there is violence in man's hearts. But more often than not, it is uh, it is it is tamped and controlled by our moral selves. And that is that's an important thing to remember about people generally. And if you don't buy uh, into that, just evolutionary psychology or biological right. psycho you know, um, the idea of preserving the species. Right, exactly. Right. Um, I will post a link to, there's an Odyssey upload, that's how I watched it. Um, a link to that will be in the description of the episode. Uh, of, of, of this episode, you'll be able to find it down there. Um, and I recommend watching it. I really, really do. Yeah. I, I will also post, uh, I think I will post the the two documentaries that I watched about the Christmas truce because that is a fascinating story mm-hmm. in itself. And um, yeah, why don't you give plugs? Yeah, so you can find my work at vitaldescent.com or uh, at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. We're currently doing our winter fundraiser and uh, we could really use your support. 
It's a 501c3, so you can write off your donation on your taxes. And if you go through that, you can see all the kickbacks that we give you. And one of them is a limited run Libertarian Institute t-shirt that I think will be really cool to have in like 30 years. You can be like, I was there during that time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Excellent. I also want to pull up um, – I'm, I'm just curious. I'm just – I know you need to pee. I'm just curious. Uh, <laughs> it went away a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. Oh, goodness. I don't know what that means. Um, no, no, no. I, I did not pee in a bottle under the desk. <laughs> I, I Although you're totally free to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, episode 27 of Liberty Weekly was the first episode – that I did oh, with yeah. you. And then we did another one on episode 147. That's, that's when that was. Nice. And, um, I think it was 27. I'm not sure. It was 27 of my show. I don't know what it was of your show. I can't find it, but, um, I am, I, I am that. Let's see. That was uploaded on in 2017 and I am, I am proud to have known you since 2017. I think I think that you are sort of a. Uh, I, I I I have great respect for you. Um, I credit you in part with with my decision in the way that I'm leading my life and and uh, becoming a lawyer to some to some extent. Credit for that goes to you. Um, yeah. And so yeah, episode 25 of yours. So very close, very close yeah. to the same time. Um. I'm proud to have known you that long. I think you're doing amazing work and uh I I am I'm happy to call you a friend and to have uh to have been, had the opportunity to speak with you again on on a show. Yeah, yeah, me too. I look forward to it and um I really appreciate, you know, talking through a lot of this stuff really helped me out tonight. Um so thank you guys for that and I'm glad we oh, got absolutely. to meet each other at Childerberg. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, you do. You do uh, such great work. Like I, I, like my favorite people are like the committed anti-war people in the liberty movement. Like uh, you guys are just like always consistent on this and never wavering. And that's that's really honorable. Yeah. Well, thank you. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Uh, Ace, you have uh, where's okay, bro? Where's your Substack, dude? Oh, oh yeah, that thing. So <laughs> where's the post? Story. Okay. Oh, speaking of Ace, you, yeah, I mean, both of you guys need to write and submit things to the institute. I yeah, I've been thinking about it. I I just I was in a brain fog for a while, so like I was yeah. just like not in the mood to write. I like I I would sit there and stare at my screen, and I'd be like, nothing's just. I know what I need to write, but nothing. The words just aren't coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. But no, on my subject, so. Yeah. So I know I'm uh, I, I'm pulling a, a George R. R. Martin right now, and I'm saying it'll be done. Trust me, the, it'll be out. <laughs> well, uh, remember no. this is this is coming out on Christmas, so you have time. If you make a commitment now, you do that have time true. to fulfill it. So here's here's what happened. I'll tell people exactly why, and I'm not justify I'm not justifying it. I'm just explaining to you what happened. Um, I am running a D and D game right now, and I have that. I have to put in a lot. I have to put in some work for that to make sure my players don't hate me. And I had to like uh, say, okay, I need to focus on this for now, and then after the game is over, then I'll finish up the writing. So that is what happened. You guys can hate me 
and uh, give me a little comment saying how much I lied. That's fine. I just want you to know that is why I have not posted the article yet. So, uh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> All right. Well, this comes out on the 25th. So there's yeah, there's time. Christmas. Christmas Day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, Dean, do you have any plugs? Uh not really. I mean, I mean, pacing okay. jokes is on Twitter. J O U S K A. Outside of that, man, I'm I'm in deep bar prep territory, so I'm not going to gotcha. be doing much of anything anywhere. Um, in fact, gotcha. I do have a thread on. Uh, I have a thread that I'm doing of the music that I'm listening to during bar prep. And oh, okay. It's just cool. it's just screenshots of my title <laughs> as I'm sitting here doing bar prep. Okay. Um, and that's probably going to be where most of my energy is going most days. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, I think uh, I think that's all I have. So uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Oh, I pulled this clip, too. I want to uh, let's let's head out on this one. Merry Christmas, okay. Fritz. Merry Christmas, Fritz. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Fritzy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of The End Times Continue. For links and other information, come see us at TETC.show.